welcome to Prussian Socialism. I'm here again with my colleague Warren Baylog. We talked last week about Machiavelli, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Machiavelli, but we're going to try to segregate the two conversations. So last time we talked about how uh, Machiavelli advises leaders to uh, that it is safer to be feared than to be loved, and that one should also not be hated. And we talked kind of about how this applies to Zog and the system and, and then how it applies to us as a political movement. But for this episode, we're going to talk about some of the military aspects that Machiavelli brings up in The Prince. So the first the first thing, uh, this is from chapter 12, and we'll read this quote. He talks about mercenary troops and uh, auxiliary troops and, and native troops and how that you know, how one ought to, uh, what, what any of these things are good for. And he says, let me say then that the armies with which a prince defends his state consist of either his own people or mercenaries or auxiliaries or a mixture. The mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless and dangerous. And if one maintains the state by means of mercenary troops, he will never be strong or safe for they are disunited, ambitious, without discipline, unfaithful. They are courageous among friends, among enemies, they are cowards. They have no fear of God, no faith in other men, and your downfall is deferred only as long as the attack is deferred. In peacetime, you are plundered by them, in wartime, by enemies. The cause of this is that they have no other love or other reason to keep them in the battlefield than a meager wage, which is not enough to make them want to die for you. Uh, the love uh, they love being your soldiers while you are not waging war, but when war breaks out, they either flee or move away. So, I mean, it's it's a it's interesting this particular quote because I mean, it's of course applicable to the Italy of Machiavelli's time, which particularly northern Italy was divided up into a bunch of different city states. You could compare it to the situation of uh, classical Greece or of. Uh, Germany in, in the time of the Holy Roman Empire, but Italy was these independent principalities and republics were constantly fighting with one another and often using mercenary troops. Those famous uh, condottieri troops were hired mercenaries that would fight with other the mercenaries of other states. And it got to the point where all these mercenary captains and mercenaries tended to know one another and be on a rather informal basis with each other. And they would often have a, a, a battle that wasn't really a battle. They would just shoot some guns and run around and, and have a brawl. And maybe a couple people would be killed. But in the end, the, the uh, decision would be made. And then they would just go back. And, and basically, they were just putting on a show for their, their patrons. Like the Democrats and the Republicans. To collect money. Yeah, it was a, <laughs> yeah. a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, so I want to take some of his observations about military uh, art and about arming people and apply them to America today. So... First of all, as far as mercenary troops, I mean, he distinguishes mercenary troops from auxiliaries. I think when he when he says auxiliaries, he means well, mercenaries are are paid soldiers. Whereas, well, it's funny because the word soldier actually comes from the word soldius, meaning is a Roman coin. So a soldier is by definition a paid person. But let's use a more let's say warriors. So you have you have paid warriors, and then you have unpaid warriors. We call paid warriors paid warriors. We call them mercenaries, and unpaid warriors we call native troops or something like that auxiliaries he means 
I think people like bodies of troops on loan from other states or uh, would the uh, mercenaries are are in the employ of a private captain. Would you say that um, I mean, a classic example of this would be in Afghanistan, classical and not classical, a modern example of this would be in Afghanistan. We had on the one hand, uh, there were a lot of private contractors in Afghanistan, which, I mean, you could call in a sense, you could call, and maybe this is where you're going with this, but you could call the U.S. Armed Forces a mercenary force. But literally, the private contractors, and and in many cases, people in the military during the war on terror would get shit wages in the military. They would go just long enough to get experience, and then they would go over right. and hire, you know, what was the one? Blackwater, Blackwater and many Z, others. Z industry. So, so they were like literally Academy. mercenaries in the old uh, Machiavellian, in the in the um, condottieri uh, sense of the word. And then they would also have like the Northern Alliance, you know, and all the other Afghan, what well, the Ash, yeah. Afghan National Army, the and Afghan and militia maybe those that they would were be auxiliaries. Those would be your auxiliaries. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think, I think Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, is a perfect example of mercenaries and auxiliaries, and you see exactly what he's saying. <laughs> and, you know, is and, like the problem with both of them, right? And and you know, the U.S. military itself is becoming more and more mercenary. A more of a mercenary type force yeah and you've seen that since like they got rid of um conscription after vietnam uh it's no longer a a, a military of the people uh which has its limitations if you're a government you don't want a military of the people if you want to fight wars uh in foreign countries that have no uh to which there is no benefit that's going to accrue to the people so you need mercenaries uh the the you, otherwise, you end up with a situation like Vietnam, where you're trying to fight a private uh, enterprise war that, or that isn't really clearly in the interest of the people, and people are going to agitate against that. With uh, the other, the other trend you see in the U.S. military since then is this idea of professionalization. So they talk about this all the time. You know, a soldier is a profession. It's like a doctor or a lawyer, which sounds to my ears immoral it just sounds like well shouldn't a soldier be someone who does it for love of country and because he he wants to defend his people and he gets paid what he needs to get paid to you know be equipped and to stay in the field but he's not being he's not doing it for the money um but nowadays no i mean the u.s military is 100 percent a mercenary force even though it's it's maybe drawn from the the people but um if you look at their advertising it's all about your career opportunities there's not even an attempt to appeal to patriotism anymore um, so yeah, the, the U.S. military is very much a, a mercenary thing. And I, I think it's in that regard, it is a much, it is a tool that is good for fighting foreign wars, but it's a bad tool for maintaining control. Well, I don't know. Is it a bad tool for maintaining control at home? It would be bad. The U.S. army as a mercenary army like it is now would be bad if say Canada was a major competitor and we had to, we were going to have a war with Canada, a conventional war. That would be disastrous. But I don't think Zog really needs to have a, a strong conventional force given its total like dominance of the American continent and Europe. Well, Greg, I don't have the same strong background in the Greeks and the Romans that you do. So uh, maybe you can explain for me and for the audience like I've, I've been studying, and we're going to talk about it in a future episode a lot, uh, the Napoleonic Wars and the transition that Clausewitz and others experienced in their own lifetime from the wars of the 18th century to the wars of the 19th century in terms of 
We're going from professional armies to small professional armies, mass conscription to, to, armies, to nas- what they call national armies, Le- levee on mass. Yeah. And, and the and the French Revolution was the thing that started this. For anybody who doesn't know, like two second history lesson. Uh, in the time of Frederick the Great, who was fighting in like the 1750s and really was the dominant military figure, military genius of the of the 18th century, the 1700s. Um, that was the height of the professional army. That is, these guys are just trained and paid to do. To, that's all they do, and you field them, and you field them against other guys that do the same. And then the French Revolution happens, and they f- have to conscript everyone into a people's army. And then Napoleon comes along and turns that into this war-winning force because he has an army that's like the Grand Army. Is it's like the combination of it. It has a, it has the enthusiasm of like the people in arms fighting for their and country. The numbers, the numbers, and the numbers, the raw numbers. That's, and the numbers. That's the big part. Is that it's just the French during the Revolution and and then under Napoleon were able to field armies much bigger than all and that's how they were able to hold off a coalition of all the other european powers at once and then that then got met by all the other powers in europe starting to rely on national armies and this reached its gruesome apotheosis in the first world war when when it was just total mass conscription mass armies butchering each other in the storm of steel but that wasn't the first time in European history where a, a small professional force gave way to a mass people's army, right? I mean, like, is, well, doesn't this it, have precedent in the ancient world? It does sort of, yes. I mean, so in, in classical Greece and like Greece of the, or archaic Greece, Greece of the 6th and 500s, they, the different city-states city would field hoplite armies. Actually, I should BC go or? BC. Yeah, okay, let's yeah. go back a little farther. Before the classical age of Greece, in the the archaic age, say seven hundred BC, the typical Greek army would have been uh, a mob of peasants and then a few aristocrats on horseback. Then, you kind of had a similar transition from these small. You had a very small professional core of the aristocrats and then just some peasants to support them. That went into hoplite warfare. Hoplite warfare is where uh, the the middle class is able to be armed and everyone is is equipped basically in the same manner with a big shield a spear uh breastplate maybe uh shin guards helmet i remember i remember the Greek uh, hoplites in rome total war yeah fighting, pain in the ass and you can when you have that uh, that hoplite army of of say you got two thousand hoplites versus uh 20 aristocrats and a, a mob of peasants your, your hoplites are going to steamroll the other side and so hoplite warfare I guess we could compare that to a a, um, a a native army, a a army of the people, and we're talking small city states here. So, I'd say numbers like two thousand is probably a reasonable number for a, a small city state. Sparta, at its peak, could maybe field ten thousand men. Wow! And then you had you had several things going on in classical Greece, where you know um, Sparta, for instance, was a total military state. Everyone served. Or all these the true Spartiates served, and then they were they had to repress everybody else, and that Spartan army could crush pretty much anybody else if they were uh, fielded correctly. But then you had other states like um, oligarchies, where they didn't have the support of the people, and uh, think of uh, Pisistratus at Athens, and they might rely on foreign mercenaries. Actually, um, Machiavelli gives the example of 
Agathocles of Syracuse, who became the tyrant of Syracuse, disposed of all the existing troops and then just brought used his own mercenaries and they were very loyal to him and he was able to really maintain control of the state with his personal mercenary army the the big change in classical history was rome really did the was kind of comparable to the leve and mass the the french mass national army I mean, the romans and you could say alexander too started fielding like huge armies from the whole state well the citizen soldier ideal is so the two things i associate with with the romans is the citizen soldier ideal of the romans and then uh was it the marian reforms yeah right yeah, so yeah where, where, where it or is that before that no no Mar- so the, Marius the citi- is what led to the citizen soldier or? no it was the other way around so the in rome from say uh third century when rome was in its its rise it was based on the hoplite principle early on like 400s bc and then as rome grew it started to have uh, more people and it had citizen soldiers so the farmers were conscripted in the military and they had various grades of troops uh depending on your wealth and they would deploy these as as units you'd like hastarae principes triari like these different age groups and, and and class groups and then that was how they fought the punic wars against carthage was with that army and that army was very effective because you'd put tons of men into the field you, you'd have uh basically you'd have some quality control everyone was pretty much trained and equipped in the same manner at least the different classes of troops were equipped and trained in the same manner but toward you mentioned marius toward uh, around the time of 100 bc there was a, a Roman politician in the name of Marius, and Rome was running into this trouble where they were fighting all these foreign wars with this old-style um, national army. So they were fighting wars in Greece and in the Orient, and then the big war that they fought was the Numantine War in North Africa, and like Alger- what's now Algeria and Morocco. And that was, if you read about it, it was very much like our uh, Iraq War or something. They were sending these or vietnam they were sending citizen soldier contingents well, that would be vietnam then. yeah, yeah vietnam yeah, right like, yeah and they were getting destroyed or they weren't getting destroyed but they were getting mauled by the local uh, insurgent forces guerrilla fighters uh used to fight on like they, uh, the numidians are famous for fighting on horseback with a light javelin and the roman generals that they were sending uh was it? metellus was was a famous one weren't very weren't very good leaders they were kind of bungling it so marius got elected consul and he was a a, he wasn't of any aristocratic background he was just some guy he he got elected consul by rising up through the military (laughs) he was a high level he was uh, i think he was second in command to metellus in the numantine war okay he got elected consul and then he went to north africa and took over as the leader and he just drilled discipline into the troops first thing he started doing little things like make sure we're posting a watch make sure we're we're training right then went took them out and act, did like little raids and little missions that he knew that they would succeed and to, to break them in because they were demoralized and weak and that started to build them up a little bit they got confident they were able to practice their little skills and then as uh the the war became more and more successful and finally the the romans won and the great like coup de main that won the whole war was this other officer an aristocrat sulla who did sort of a special forces mission where he was able to trick the numantines into giving over their leader um i think of his name 
I, I, there are people today in, in this region of the world who are named after the guy. Can't, can't, name slip, slip, slips in my mind right now. But Solo was able to like treacherously secu- get the leader, capture him Osama bin Laden style, and then um, had, him, had, him killed, uh, had him killed in Rome later. Anyway, after all that happened, Marius and Solo were sort of competing personalities in Rome. Uh, for for power and Marius was more popular with the people and was more interested in, in reform of the whole system. He knew that he was seeing that like the the citizen soldier army was no longer working because the farmers and this should sound familiar were having their farms bought out by rich uh, magnates who were farming it with mass imported slave labor. So the Roman army couldn't really recruit more troops because it needed it. You had to have a certain property amount of property to be a soldier and they couldn't recruit the urban proletariat. They didn't think they were politically reliable. They could only recruit these soldier farmers who were patriotic Romans, but they were at the same time, the oligarchy was squeezing these guys. And so Marius did a reform of the army and he famously held five consulships in a row in like 104 to 100 BC. And he was, he was elected because they had a huge uh, crisis of immigration of I would say immigration invasion by two Germanic groups called the Teutons and the Cimbri that like crushed a bunch of Roman armies in, in uh, Southern Gaul and Northern Italy. And the, the state was panicking because they couldn't figure out how to deal with these. So they elected Marius and he immediately did a uh, reform of the army, he did things like he took the, the units that they usually fought in, which are called maniples. A maniple is two centuries. So it's like 160 men and he grouped them into threes. So he made cohorts which the the purpose of which was like you put them on the battlefield and they they look bigger. So when you're facing a Germanic horde of like fifty thousand barbarians, the men feel more confident because they're grouped into bigger groups. And then he emphasized um, he actually brought gladiators out to teach the Roman troops sword play because they had been like neglect they've been teaching marching and spear throwing and I don't know whatever whatever else, but they've been neglecting basic sword play. Okay. Um, anyway, so after they they dealt with the Teuton and the Kimbri situation, Marius reformed the army again to make it a professional force because it was no longer, um, they couldn't really, it it didn't, it wasn't like possible to keep doing the, uh, the old style army where you just recruited everybody, um, from, uh, all the farmers, uh, because they would have to be away for a longer period of time than farmers could typically typically be away. You can't fight a campaign in Asia Minor with guys who are supposed to be home for the harvest. And if you do, then the harvest isn't being brought in. You've got economic problems, and now their farms are being bought out even more so by the, the oligarchs. So uh, he did uh, one of the things he did was with professionalization was troops are now paid and equipped by the state. I think before they would were mostly providing their own, paying for their own equipment. And he also, he, there's a famous phrase, Marius' mules. So he required them to carry their own stuff so that there was no baggage train. So you'd be loaded down with like 100 pounds of stuff to carry. And that made them much more mobile. Right. And But the political implications of this, of this professionalized army were that now the troops were loyal to their commander and not to the state. Right. Because... The state isn't paying them, or the state is paying them, but it's the commander who has to go into politics to secure the interests of the troops. Like once you've retired as a soldier, you know, you, you want to get your farm or something to, 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 
to sustain yourself and have a family and all those sorts of things. You can't do that if the state is just taking away all the land and buying up everything. So Marius in politics went into a, you know, stayed in politics and then got elected uh, to more consulships. He held seven total consulships and he always advocated specifically for his men, like for my veterans, my veterans need land in Italy. And the Senate said, no, 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 we can't. We have no more land in Italy. We're going to have to try North Africa. No, no, no. I want land in Italy. And um, so we had this like core of men who were like totally loyal to him. And Sulla, member from North Africa, the aristocrat, the blonde haired, blue eyed aristocrat, very strange for Italy, was his sort of competitor. Sulla was doing the same kinds of things. His troops were loyal to Sulla. Uh, because Sulla was the one in politics who would advocate for Sulla's veterans. And uh, this all came to a head with uh, a sort of civil war between Marius and Sulla. And uh, Sulla famous marched on Rome twice uh, when uh, Marius like took over the government behind Sulla's back. And Sulla went to his troops and said, this is an outrage. How, they, they've taken my... They've taken uh, the state from us and how dare they? And these, these in, uh, insurrectionists, we will destroy them. And but like and no one could imagine at what's funny about all of this and what's interesting is that prior to that time it was unthinkable to march on rome rome had a very strong military institution a very strong tradition that you don't march on the state and that's sort of like a a very good guarantee of the system continuing is that there's a tradition that no one would ever think to do such a thing you know you uh, think of uh, latin american countries or middle eastern countries there's coup d'etats all the time America hasn't ever had a coup d'etat. Um, England hasn't had a coup d'etat. And these states have been established and have, have their, their military traditions. But, like, when things got bad enough in Rome... Well, I guess England, there were a couple... Well, I'm I mean, thinking in the last 300 years, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, wasn't... I mean, Cromwell, the glorious, but, the, Yeah, the Glorious yeah. Revolution was a, was a, was a uh, um, coup d'etat when james was deposed by uh, william of orange yeah that, that's and uh there were a we've had we've had a good 300 years though without a coup d'etat in england yeah i guess so i guess so yeah yeah so yeah so when after that after marius's reforms there was really no going back to the mass professional army the way it had been before and it was or it's sorry the mass national conscripted citizen soldier army yeah and it it became a professional army okay so what were the what were the implications of that as far as uh the weakening of the i mean would would you say that that contributed to the downfall of the roman empire eventually of the republic certainly of the republic okay. yeah and then the i know the founding fathers were very much concerned with these particular examples uh okay. when they established america they were very much thinking about the roman example and the uh, malady or the that is professional troops it's professional troops uh, a small professional army is, is a it, it can be a threat to the state right especially especially to a republic right. um, where it's it's governed by a conglomeration of interests and there's no strong leader I mean, professional troops can easily be rallied to overthrow the state well it becomes an instrument of rule that if you just control that instrument then you control the state yeah. And uh, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So then that's more then that's a different issue than what Machiavelli is talking about. Right. Because, I mean, he's talking about mercenaries specifically, which I guess are mercenaries would be more like Blackwater. Mercenaries would be more foreign. Yes. Uh, people that you hire 
Although I will say that uh, it's interesting that the U.S. military today includes so many immigrants and and so many non-whites in general, but so many immigrants particularly, um, because and it, and the U.S. military has always done that. I think like even back, uh, you know, I was surprised when I read about uh, Custer and the Battle of Little Little Bighorn that uh, in the movies and and in history they always portray it like the the the, the U.S. cavalry were like the ultimate. The 7th Cavalry were like the ultimate like American white dudes fighting the Indians. And Custer's force, I, I think I read that his force at the Little Bighorn was like 40% immigrants. like they And they were mostly Irish and German. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was a quick way. You know, I mean, the service sucked back then. I mean, the, the, the sabers that they had were called wrist breakers because they were so like badly weighted that when you would try to swing them, they would break your wrist. And the horses were like vastly inferior to the horses that they that the Indians had. And uh, it, I mean, it sucked. It was not like this is like the flower of our country, the elite cavalry going out battling the frontier. It was like a shitty well, service. I think for most for most of the last hundred years, let's say the backbone of the U.S. military has been Southerners and Midwesterners. Yeah, yeah, Southerners. You know, that's a funny thing, too. Um, Just sort of a little aside here. uh, I observed that with Hollywood, you know, I think of Gone with the Wind particularly. I mean, there was nothing that Hollywood didn't do in the late 1930s that wasn't sort of like gearing up for war. And it's so funny. People today watch Gone with the Wind and they're like, liberals are like, I can't believe that you know, the in the movies in the past, they would make movies that are so racist, like Gone with the Wind and glorifying slave owners and, and showing like Southerners like they're some, some kind of heroes. But if you look at films from the 1930s, Warner Brothers made plenty of movies that were like anti-racist, anti-Nazi, going after the Ku Klux Klan, the Black Legion. There was a movie with Humphrey Bogart. I, the way I view Gone with the Wind is romanticizing the south in 1939 in mm. a way that's sort of like hey southerners no, they, you know, they de- like- i know that you know uh there's a story i think it was in woodrow wilson's administration right before world war one they had a big uh southern veterans parade or uh in dc well that's waving. when all those statues got built all the all the robert e lee and all those got built because when the national ethos was all right North beat the South, but like you fought an honorable fight, and now we're all one nation. And we respect your your uh, valor in right. the Civil War, and now we're one people again, and and we can conquer the world. Well, well, and that's and like it, the logical way that to treat that. But sort it, but of it's thing. like particularly in the early twentieth century, there was a renewed thing, and they say it was to to enshrine Jim Crow. That's the way they explain. It. Of course, like it was it was all to to justify the, the, the lost cause myth and all that, or the noble lost cause myth or whatever the hell they call it. But I sense very strongly the fact that Southerners, and yes, that was true when my grandfather was in the Navy and my, my, other, grandf- my, my other grandfather was in the Army Air Corps and my, all my uncles were in World War II. All the officers that had been in for a while were Southerners. And uh, I almost feel like that was definitely a thing in the early part of the 20th century suddenly holding up Robert E. Lee, holding up all these southern confederate generals as a way of taking the south and and repurposing southerners and southern heritage and southern identity for... In the service of Yankee imperialism. Yeah, in the service of a global U.S. presence, military presence, a global, like the U.S. asserting itself on the global stage, you know? But even Um, even until 
very recently. I mean, it's only now that I think you're really seeing a uh, sort of uh, pushing out of those Southerners and Midwesterners. Because yeah. that, that yeah. was Iraq and Afghanistan was all, you know, look at all the dead. It's all Southerners and Midwesterners and like yeah. an occasional black guy or a guy from a Hispanic guy or a, a New Englander maybe. But basically all Midwestern Germans and Southern like Anglo-Saxon Irish types. That's a very interesting point. But uh, with mercenaries, I mean, yeah, Rome did use mercenaries later. Like in the late empire, they started to use mercenaries. They would hire just whole bands of Germans as mercenary troops. And the Byzantine Empire was also notorious for using lots of mercenaries uh, to augment its uh, native forces that, you know, it still did have native troops, but um, a lot of their, their best units were Russians or Anglo-Saxons in the time of like the 900s or the 1000s. So, um, you know, there's there's that late antiquity example of uh, of mercenaries being used in Roman times, and uh, it, particularly as the the empire like degraded, they started using just outright mercenary troops under their own captains, like under like some German leader, like Alaric the Goth or something. You are in charge of your people. We're not going to like attempt to break to recruit these Germans into existing Roman units and have Roman officers. No, no, none of that. Like we're just at this point, it's paying this guy. You, you already have the established like group and you're fighting for the state, which is a very precarious situation as you know, you would know from Alaric the Goth who, when he wasn't getting what he wanted out of the system, just sacked Rome. Right. The, you know, contrast the earlier examples. And these are the ones that uh, Machiavelli gives are, are like, um, Hero, Hero of, Syrac of Syracuse and Agathocles of Syracuse, these mercenary captains um, leading like small armies for Greek city-states. You know, the other example from classical history of, of, of a great mercenary army, true mercenary army, I mean, we're kind of, I don't, it is, I think you can talk about um, a conventional army like the American army now or the late Roman army as being a sort of mercenary force it's sort of a sliding scale between how mercenary you are and how right. native you are. Well, even even to, if it is an official army with like a, officially recruited, if their main uh, incentive for fighting is being paid, you're you're more of a mercenary force. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's the sliding scale. I mean, soldiers have to eat, and and they have to have they have to be provided for. You know, like soldiers when they're when they're out, and and unless they're just completely like pillaging, and and that's how they're surviving. Uh, they have to have some kind of compensation for their service. So, yeah, at what point does does it cross over to where you are actually just a mercenary? And that's, a, I mean, I guess you could say when when it's like they will fight for the highest bidder. Uh, you know, the um, the famous uh, mercenary. I'm thinking of the, the Swiss. Yeah. In in the time of the Landsknechts, you know, and there they were there were, and then I'm also thinking of the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War is another example, like from what I know about it, where, where things degenerated into just like what you were saying with the Italian city states, where it's just like groups of mercenaries, like basically just going around sides, pillaging and, and going around uh, and pillaging and changing and like, sides. And, 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 like, and you had pikemen and, and, uh, uh, musketeers. And it was like a, a thing that nobody wanted to be a pikeman because you got this big pike and you can't pillage as well with a pike. You right. Gotta, <laughs> Right. <laughs> you got to like stack it outside the house before you go in and like rape and murder people. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And that <laughs> so was the musketeers all... got to have all the fun and the pikemen just had to name? stand around. Uh, 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 the famous guy, uh, Wallenstein, you know, yeah. Wallenstein was the, 
I guess Imperial, the Imperial commander. Yeah, yeah. During the and it, it was just like uh, tons of but but yeah. So that was an example where things just degenerated into almost like warlordism, almost you know where it's just like rival warlords uh, taking, but but they weren't as bound to territory. But, uh, but Machiavelli yeah. does. He mentions to the the Swiss in regard to the French, like okay. the, the the French kings had their own forces, but they had to augment them heavily with Swiss troops, and it the Swiss just weren't. They were because they're being paid. They're just too. Uh, they weren't reliable. Right, right. So oh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I I think that if okay. So let's let's back up for a second. I think that with Machiavelli. You know, we can we can split hairs over what's a mercenary and what isn't. But what he's talking about is uh, national arms. Uh, he wants to have what like what does he say? I'm trying to find it here. What does he say are the good uh, are the good thing that you want to have? Uh, he like here I'm looking. This is which chapter is this? This is chapter uh, thirteen. He says, the armies of France are mixed, being partly national and partly mercenary. Armies thus composed are far superior to mere mercenaries or mere auxiliaries, but far inferior to forces purely national. And this example is in itself, uh, is itself conclusive. For the realm of France would be invincible if the military ordinances of Charles VII had been retained and extended. But from want of foresight, men made changes which, relishing well at first, do not betray their hidden venom, as I have already observed respecting hectic fever. Nevertheless, the ruler is not truly wise who cannot discern evils before they develop themselves, and this is a faculty given to few. And then there, oh, there he goes. I forgot. I knew, he, I knew he said it. And if we look for the causes which first led to the overthrow of the Roman Empire, they will be found to have had their source in the employment of Gothic mercenaries. For from that hour, the strength of the Romans began to wane and all the virtue which went from them passed to the Goths. And to be brief, I say that without national arms, to, no princedom is safe, but on the contrary is wholly dependent on fortune, being without the strength that could defend it in adversity. And it has always been the deliberate opinion of the wise that nothing is so infirm and fleeting as a reputation for power not founded upon a national army, by which I mean one composed of subjects. So here he's defining it. A national army, by which I mean one composed of subjects, citizens, and dependents, all others being mercenary or auxiliary. Okay, so subjects or citizens, you know, I can see how they, you, could, you could say that the United States military is not mercenary, but what's interesting is about this, this military that kind of does get into this is if this country couldn't provide as well as it does for them. Like, let's look at Ukraine and Russia, okay? Uh, do you think that our military would do as well as the Russians are doing in Ukraine? No. Or the Ukrainians not, are doing? Not for instance, no. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Uh, you know, American, the American armed forces have not had to deal with a conflict where there's like... Where, where you're actually having casualties. I mean, you saw this with the, the Reddit brigade uh, when they got... Uh, struck in east uh, in western ukraine and it was oh my god uh, we, we didn't even have a chance it's like yeah when you're you know not you don't have massive material superiority like american troops are used to and are trained to have right. when you can like call in a drone strike i mean it's it's sort of standard 
was was standard doctrine that if with uh, your combat ineffective, if 25% of your troops are casualties, either killed or wounded. Right, right, right. So and you think the Russian army has that doctrine? Yeah. Like two, yeah. two guys twist their ankle out of your squad of eight and you can't keep fighting? Well, the funny like, thing about U.S. troops whenever I see them is they look like... Uh, I mean, they look a little over-equipped mm -hmm. is one way of putting it. Well, this is like I mean, the they're classic. Like, they're like the cyborgs. I mean, they're, they're so like decked out in like, and, and it makes me think that, you know, a lot of that technology gives you the edge. A lot of it is necessary, but. It's compensating uh, for a lack of will. Well, most, I, I'm think. just, I'm struck by like, for instance, the, uh, the, 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 dad often tells me about the Vietnamese, uh, the Viet Cong, how they would just like, and he, he has, my dad was never in Vietnam and he would not have gone, but he has friends who, who did one guy, uh, that was really in some heavy fighting. And he said that these Viet Cong would go up <laughs> the woods with like some old, like bold action rifle and like, and, like a handful of rice bare, barefoot and, <laughs> yeah, and they'd be up in the mountains with like, like nibbling on a handful of rice with some bold action rifle. And they would just be, you know, killing, uh, American troops. I mean, it, it's, it's like, I think that the U S military, I mean, you could say this. One of the things that Machiavelli says uh, that, that we were going to talk about today, and we'll get to this chapter in a second, is how a state that wants to be uh, a statesman should, should focus mainly on war, that that's what a statesman should focus on. If he wants to be secure in power, he should focus on war above all. That's the first thing. And when I was talking to you about this yesterday, I said, in a way, the Zog is doing that part right in that the majority of their spending goes to war i mean i mean the u.s military budget is like how much bigger than like the next 10 highest budgets or something i mean it's insane what the u.s military spends on defense and it never gets it never goes down like it, no matter what whether it's democrats or republicans whether it's uh you know whether we're in a recession or whether we're, we're in times of prosperity they put more and more and more money into the military but What's, what's, uh, I just want a quick observation, something I've, with like the heavy loading of troops with gear and equipment and oh, like yeah. focus on gear, this, I think it's like a particularly American and Western European thing. I uh, think of like the way, I mean, uh, the way the Germans, for instance, focused on creating like the perfect, beautiful tiger tank and the Russians focused on just creating the T-34, like very rugged, very easy to produce. Uh, it's like a, a uniquely Western European American mentality to have like the best equipment and the best stuff, because that way you can, uh, you know, take out five for every one that you lose. Right. Well, it's a which, huge which, which, which can be a huge advantage, but yeah. it isn't a huge advantage if every soldier that gets offed by some guy with a bolt action in the forest cost you half a million dollars to raise and equip and deploy right 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 well and then, and then there's the element of war profiteering of of the arms industry is so i mean even not just the arms industry i mean you talk about sulla and and marius and taking care of his guys i mean i remember robert bird in west virginia like one of robert bird's biggest things that i mean he was like the king of west virginia robert c bird the senator right for for decades and there are so many things in West Virginia that are named after him. I mean, it's just endless, the number of things named after Robert C. Byrd. And what he was good at was earmarking funds because he had seniority and he was in all these committees. And he was good at earmarking funds for, like, military stuff 
that would get done or made here and others, other other national things. But I mean, so much of like what drives military spending in the United States is a senator wants to have a base in their home state or uh, a plant or making weapons right. or doing I mean, this something is, in but their this home is petty, state. This is petty grift compared to Marius or Sulla. Marius right. or Sulla understood that it's not just getting you know an arms factory in Campania to buy those votes. You got to get the personal like mafia style loyalty of the veterans and their families right. because then you can march on Rome. Right. Right. And right, nobody right. in America has done that yet. But I, I do think that that is something that we'll see in the next century. It, it's, I don't it, think so because to. I just think that the, I think that because of the, 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 the military leadership is so effeminate and disgusting. True. That they, the only person, I mean, if there was ever an individual that could do that, it would be Donald Trump. You know, it would not be a general. It would not be a because they're right. political. Like it would have to be a big. I could see it being like like a big businessman could do kind of a similar. But it would thing. have to be a guy. It would almost have to be Donald Trump because it's like for anyone less colorful and less like you well, know Elon, it, Elon Musk. Yeah, is sort of the uh, like uh, a a. Uh, but they don't have the coming, loyalty of the you know, and that's the. But I know, but he could win it. Like, see, I'll tell you something else about the U.S. military. I think race race mixing in the U.S. military is so prevalent that I almost feel like it's a state-sponsored thing. It's like a it's like a it's an official policy of the U.S. military to encourage uh, a blending to guys to have mixed race uh, families, mixed race children. I have seen this over and over and over and over again, and part of it's a product of. The fact that guys in the military are uprooted from their local communities and sent all over the place. You know, yeah, if, you're, yeah. if, you're a, if you're a military guy, which to me, again, is another one of these things that just seems like very counterintuitive. I mean, I guess the National Guard is supposed to be not that. Right. It's... But to me, like, if, if it were me, my National Guard would be like the real military. And and whoever goes around the world would just be my like special forces. But the actual body of my military would be guys that are drawn from a specific region, serve together, train together, which is the old like almost Germanic way of doing war. You know, like Germanic tribes, and and it's very yeah, that, you... it, right. But that makes a more effect. That makes a more effective force against an enemy, but it also makes a more politically unstable force it does, or le less yeah. easy to control force well, well they what they want to build up is a mil a u.s military that is truly you know military brats right military brats yeah. well what's the idea of a military brat if you ever talk to military brats i mean tony hovader was a military brat like they don't have the connectedness they never had the connectedness when they were kids to a particular area in fact most of them have the experience when they're kids of being like they make friends for like a few years and then suddenly they're ripped away and they're thrown into a new school and then they have to make new friends and then it and this happens over and over and over again and this is why a lot of families stay in the military and i feel like that also is building up uh you know what what jack london in in uh uh what is it uh, the iron heel described as like a mercenary caste a caste of mercenaries mm -hmm. who I think we're close to having that in this country, like a mercenary caste. And I think that's part of why the amount of race mixing that goes on in the military, the amount of interracial everything in the military, the fact that the military is deliberately, military families are moved around so that they never take root in one area and that they're not like... I, I, well, it is a good policy. I mean, it's to 
to keep the loyalty of the troops to the state and not to their local area. Yes. The Romans had this problem later in their history when they started to have you know, in the, the two, three, four hundreds when troops started getting attached to their particular frontier region. Yeah. So like you couldn't redeploy a Rhine legion to the to the Parthian front. It was just, right. no, they're not like you try to order that they're going to try to stage a coup because they're just not doing it. And so Constantine in the in the three hundred early three hundreds had to he split the military into two kinds. He had uh, like uh, guardian frontier troops who are of lower quality, more like a national guard kind of thing. And then the field army, which was more elite troops who would move around. Right. Well, that's what most I mean, most countries, I think, that's have kind like of some kind of a home guard. And then they have a, you know, um, but. Yeah, I think that, you know, if you look at Hitler, Hitler looked at the uh, military as uh, a school of the nation. So, in other words, his big grand socialist project, and, and to some extent this happened by accident with the draft in World War I and World War II, particularly World War II, and also somewhat in the Vietnam War. But it took people from all over the country and put them in the same service together. And in that sense, created a kind. It, it broke down like regional barriers, national barriers, and, I mean, and you want that. In a, yeah, in a, but you don't want it to become its own thing. You, you know, it, I think that's good. It's good to do that. Do you want that to build the nation, not to build the military as a distinct caste from the nation? Well, like yeah, like for instance, I think it would be a wise thing. Like you don't want. It, it's a bad idea to have your troops raised in a certain region. Like, let's say Appalachia, because Appalachia, you know, in Appalachia, very high rate of enlistment, you know, and mainly because of lack of economic opportunity. Um, but, you know, West Virginia, I think, had like the highest enlistment rate of any state during the during the war on terror. Um, but if you raise troops from Appalachia or from the Midwest Plains or from New England and they train together and they serve together all on bases in that area, like the National Guard. That's a recipe for regionalism and regional breakup. But if you have everybody, everybody from everywhere serves in the same common force and they're sent all over the country and they and they're, they're sent around the world to various bases. But you do that for a very limited period, like one to two years. You know, the that's, classic, what the, I mean, like, that's what the Soviet Union used to do. Yes. And that's what that's what the Israelis do. I mean, the Israeli Israel's a tiny country, but they have conscription and they put everybody in. Then you forge a national consciousness and you get people out of their little backyard and, and you give them a pride in the service, but you're not creating multi-generational cast of people who feel no attachment to any region and are just like always moving around and always, you know what I mean? Right. So, so and this, this military definitely encourages that. There are other incentives as far as, uh, you know, if you're the son of a... I think the way it works... I mean, half the audience listening to this knows what I'm talking about and could probably tell me better than me. But I, I think there's, like, certain things if you if your father's in the military you know you can you get can, you can be on the uh, life insurance policies and stuff like that and, but i think there's certain other things it's easier to get into certain things it's e easier to get well it's certainly program. if you if you have a, a military record and honorable discharge you get preference in federal hiring doesn't your don't your kids though also like i think if you if you are a veteran with a certain record and your kids want to enlist i believe or they want to serve in some way I know, like, with West Point, I think with West Point, if you went to West Point, uh, you're, you're a West Point graduate, I think your kids get some kind of um, step up to get into West Point. I think. I could be wrong. Well, sir, I mean, you, you have to get the congressional, you have to get a recommendation from um, 
your your congressman. Yeah. But, and of course, that's going to be easier. But I don't know if there's any official thing like that. I brought up here, Greg, uh, this is from 2022. So for the audience who can't see this, but this is the defense spending in billions of dollars. Uh, the United States spends more on defense than the next nine countries combined. So they have nine countries on the left, and the total number is $777 billion. And then they have the United States, and it's $801 billion. Now, of the $777 billion on the left, the largest by far is China, but it's still only about one-third what the U.S. spends, which is incredible when yeah. you think that China has like three times our population, that they are spending about, a, it's a little between a third and half, I would say. It's maybe like two-fifths what we spend. Then maybe like one-tenth or less of what we spend is India, which also has like three times our population. Then about the same is the UK, which is like, I forget, half or less than half of the population yeah, of the US. Than, yeah. And then Russia, which is like twice or three times our land mass. So like, yeah, Russia's getting the most bang for their buck. They're uh, maybe not a... Maybe not a world power on the level of the U.S., but they're close. They're a pure Militarily, well, in, on, in nuclear parity, I mean, they have more nuclear weapons than the United States. Russia does. But what, uh, what Warren, what all that's buying us is the ability to, uh, you know, project our force around the whole world. You know, it's not cheap to have the whole empire, the worldwide uh, sea empire like we have. You know, Russia can't put Marines Whoa. in in uh, Panama, like, in 24 hours like we can. Well, this is what I'm saying. So Russia, and then just to go through the rest, is smaller numbers France, Germany, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and South Korea. So that is an incredible uh, breakdown. But yeah, if you look at that, I wonder, first of all, I wonder how much of that is just buying, buying an army. So in other words, where you have no patriotism, where you have no, no actual patriotism. You know, we say God bless America, but nobody actually gives a shit about this country. I mean, honestly. No, I, you're, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not laughing because it's just an obvious truth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say every country there, with the possible exception of Germany, the people feel more pride in their country than they do in, in the United States. Um, the social fabric itself is so fragmented and just destroyed and shattered. Uh, communities, civic life is gone. Well, you see what, what they're doing now with the military, it seems, is it's, for the most part, a lot of the military is basically just a welfare program. You... Yeah. Some black woman signs up and goes through basic training bullshit and gets a, a job a, an admin job where she wears a uniform it's a joke i mean yeah 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 so this is not a fighting force right right and the the fighting the fighting elements are like these tiny things like special forces or, or like recon light infantry and stuff that are still mostly white men and, and everybody knows this to be true, but nobody's allowed to say it. Um, you know, to get, give one more Roman comparison, it's like in the late empire, they started doing this too, where they, they had more and more like bizarre special forces, uh, because the, the regular troops are degraded so much in their quality that they just had to, uh, go around and strip the existing units for like their best, most, uh, aggressive men, and then put them into special elite units right. because you need, it's you need those special units politically uh, to control all the uh, weaker units, and you kind of in like in a mixed army, 
like a mercenary army with with a native element you need the native element to control the mercenaries so you you, know, you think if you're having a battle you put the mercenaries out front because if they break and run you still have the native troops to either you know shoot them down or to keep fighting but if you put the mercenaries in back like the byzantines did or well like the byzantines did at, at uh manzikert it wasn't the Byzantines had like a, a very unreliable uh, Andronicus Ducas was the guy's name, uh, prince at the ba- a, leading the rear guard. And so, if the main force breaks and the rear guard is mercenaries or is like an unreliable political guy, he's just gonna be like, oh well, uh, you need me to reinforce the left flank. Uh, yeah, actually, this I'm just gonna walk the, away. Uh, uh, Patrick McGoon is Edward the Longshanks in Braveheart when he's like, uh, should we use archers? And he's like, not the archers. Our, my scouts tell me that their archers are miles away and no threat to us. Use up the Irish. Arrows cost money. The dead cost nothing. Or isn't there another line from that movie where they're like talking about shooting arrows and oh, well, it's and the same. Like, oh, it's and the same. But our troops, but our troops are there. <laughs> He's like he, he, he says now use the archers when they're all mixed up. He says beg pardon, sire, won't we shoot our own troops? He says. Yes, but we'll hit theirs as well. He says, we have reserves. <laughs> um, no, I just, there was an article in The Economist, uh, actually, uh, this week or last week, I guess it was um, last week, yeah, July 19th, and it was, what to read to understand modern warfare. Our defense editor picks five books that help make sense of how wars are fought today. And I thought this was just a funny, interesting um Opening paragraph, it says, The war in Ukraine is a curious mix of old and new. Soldiers crouch in trenches that would not be out of place in Verdun were it not for the glimpse of a reconnaissance drone above. Some Ukrainian gunners receive orders via Elon Musk's Starlink constellation of satellites. Others fire artillery pieces that predate the Cuban Missile Crisis. Chinese-made quadcopters drop 1940s vintage grenades on unsuspecting Russian tanks. It has the feel of a steampunk novel by Tom Clancy. Making sense of all this can be tricky. Conscription has ebbed away in America and most big European countries, so military matters seem rarefied. The Western wars of the past 30 years have been waged largely against assorted insurgents and guerrillas. The sound of big guns once more pounding out duels within Europe is disorienting. Isn't that interesting? It's like like saying, what is the... Where is war headed? You know, are we headed back for conventional war? Conventional wars between like larger, where like big artillery pieces count. You know, I mean, certainly, the Ukraine-Russia war is forcing a lot of people to rethink the way they've been thinking about the military. I think, I think, ever since the end of history, Fukuyama, you know, the idea has been we're just going to need drones and airstrikes and jets and special forces to go in like the like the navy seals like to, like what happened well, with think, bin laden is like the classic thing i think that this country thought it it, it needs special well, i operations. think zog, zog is realizing uh that yes it's very good at these uh like little surgical strikes special forces kind of stuff uh but it's bad at or it really doesn't have much of an ability for a like big conventional battle Whereas I think the Russians and the Chinese still do. So, you know, not that not that anybody's planning for that, but if Russia wants to have a war in Ukraine, Russia can be sure that 
while it may not annihilate an, an American conventional force if, if America wanted to send that, it at least will be able to inflict so much damage on it that Zog just doesn't even like go there. Uh, and so Zog's only option is to rely on local forces and to just arm every, to send arms and try to do everything else to like build up a little bit of a force to fight the Russians. What do you think about Lloyd Austin, uh, King Kong, as I like to call him, uh, and these and these Bidenites purging the military of white nationalists and people like that? Uh, you know, I I know personally. I've talked to people who are really like lifelong military people who have been in for years and are close to getting their like 20 year mark or whatever. Some that have like four years to go. They've been in the military for like 16 years. This is their life. And they got four years till they get to 20. And now they're afraid. Like I, this one guy told me that his son was in and he was afraid. He was an auto mechanic and his son was in the military and he comes from a big military family. And he said his son was afraid that he's going to get like a tranny assigned to his unit mm-hmm. under his command because Oosh. he's afraid what's going to happen is his men are going to bully that tranny till they kill themselves and then he as the commander will be on the hook for it you know right um i mean i don't know what machiavelli would say about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it- about forcing trannies and, and women and stuff in the in the military but i mean do you think that this is uh, well? On the one hand, it seems like our bloated military budget might be partially to cover up the social project that's going on. Like you said, it's a welfare system for a lot of people. Maybe it's also like a social project for a lot of people. I mean, I mean it I mean, kind of has been since since they integrated, uh, you know, in, in the ni- late forties. Well, I mean, Hitler. We was, the the about, military was the first thing to integrate blacks and whites, so it was it like, was, oh, well, it was this, under can, under FDR. Can we do FDR. this? FDR, yeah, FDR was the pioneer. I didn't realize that until recently when I was researching that. Wait, really, it happened. Well, because it happened Truman, right? Because it happened no, after World War no, Two when no. they actually integrated. It happened before. It was actually I I put some of the details of this in my last speech to the NJP. It started with, I mean, yes, the full integration happened. Under like the, integration of actual units. I mean, but, they had blacks but, in, in, the, in the military in World War II, but they were segregated in their but, own but, units. But FDR pioneered, and it was actually before the war started, but it was in the military buildup. He started integrating the munitions industry and, and pushing for that. And he started using executive orders to integrate areas of national defense preparation i did not realize until mm. i was researching that that it was fdr it always goes back to that son of a bitch that cr- as this one italian uh family my dad knew uh this italian guy said that when he heard that uh roosevelt died he came home to his mother and he said mom mom roosevelt's the president he died and and his mother said in italian Thank God that crippled bastard is dead. <laughs> but, I mean, he it started with him. And I, I feel like it's funny because if, if you could say that Hitler used the the Wehrmacht as a almost a social project to transform Germany in, in the mo- model of his national socialist ideal, in much the same way that Napoleon used the Grand Army to transform France, uh... It's like the U.S. military has, you're absolutely right, been engaged in a project since the 1940s of remaking the society to conform with its ideals uh, and using the military as sort of the laboratory for that. But 
it seems completely at odds with military well it's it's, it's, it's well, we keep coming back to this it's it's at odds with military effectiveness but it's not at odds with the maintaining the political control of a degenerate government like we have because you can be more sure of the loyalty of people who are in this military caste who don't have any particular connection to a uh, region and uh when you have this sort of integration uh racial integration and not just to families but people who they're friends with uh their 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 comrades are of different races well then it's harder to politicize those people to act in their own interests when their closest real real relationships are often with people of different races so you know why should i you know why would i be a white nationalist if if my uh two best friends who i fought with in afghanistan or whatever are a black and a hispanic you know it's right you know it, it it is um no uh, another thing about Machiavelli uh, that he mentions, you know, talking about like this sort of sliding scale between a full mercenary army and then maybe a more of an army of the people is Machiavelli talks about arming the people specifically. And let me read this part. He says that when you get into office or when you get into office as as the prince, uh, it's often advantageous to arm people so he says now there has never been a time when a new prince has disarmed his subjects on the contrary when he has found them disarmed he has always armed them because once armed those arms become yours those uh, you find suspicious become loyal and those who were loyal continue to be so and from your subjects they become your partisans but since not all your subjects can be armed when those you have uh, when those you arm are favored you can deal more safely with the others and the difference of treatment they recognize on their behalf makes them obliged to you and others uh, the others forgive you judging that those who are subject to more danger and more responsibility must be more deserving but when you disarm them you begin to offend them <laughs> and you show you have no trust in them either out out of fear or lack of confidence and both of these opinions generate hate against you oh yeah so <laughs> so i mean that's that's you know, very relevant and, and that's broader than just the military of course this is the second amendment whole debate of uh when you arm the- people when you arm people this is a this is a good point when you arm people and they have arms it's very hard to disarm them it's very hard to disarm them without pissing them off you know and it, it's but it's like- e- and it's e- it's easy if they've been disarmed to say yeah well i authorize people to buy weapons right and then they feel a certain uh obligation to you as like, well he he trusted me with this weapon i right. i respect him right so i mean maybe the founding fathers were thinking that of that when they put in the uh, the second amendment guarantee maybe i mean I mean, they were certainly thinking of of the the idea that a, a militia is a safer uh guarantee of, of freedom than a mercenary army because if you have if you have a militia and you have somebody gets into power who is acting against the interests of the people while well, there's a natural like opposition there yes yeah well and uh you know jazz hands likes to point out that the bill of rights was tacked onto the constitution like months or years or like two years after it was already ratified and that it was mainly it, they were concessions to the demands of the people that mm-hmm. were pissed off but i don't know the exact history of the second Amendment. well you'll see you'll hear, hear people say that no the founding fathers didn't um they didn't engineer the constitution to allow for revolution right which is i think kind of missing the point like they weren't 
I think what they what they're trying to do was to have if you have an armed citizenry and you have a, or especially a militia where they're actually organized and they're actually working out and training together, then you're less likely to have a tyrant a tyranny come about because everybody's going anybody who attempts to institute a tyranny is going to be afraid of of the potential for a revolution. So I have some more charts here, Greg, that you can look at with me. Uh, how many guns are there in the U.S.? I love when liberals do stuff like this. So the estimated number of firearms per 100 residents. So this is the top 10 civilian gun-owning countries. In Iceland, it's 31.7. Lebanon, 31.9. Lebanon. Finland, I feel like that's an undercount. Like, all these Middle Eastern countries are drastically undercounted. <laughs> Finland, it's 32.4. The Finns have conscription, right? It's citizen sold. Like, every guy gets a gun and takes it home. Cyprus, it's 34. Canada, it's... <laughs> 34.7 uh, firearms per 100 residents. Uruguay, 34.7. Montenegro, 39.1. Serbia... Where, where even is that? Montenegro is down there between Serbia and... Uh, oh, right, that Serbia. one. Yeah. I was thinking of Andorra. Oosh. Serbia is 39.1. Yemen is 32.8. Or, I'm sorry, 52.8. Quite a jump. And the U.S. is 120.5. So per 100 residents, we have 120.5 firearms. And uh, it doesn't. It, it's funny. It doesn't even account for uh, Switzerland. No, isn't even. Uh, well, they, I mean, I, I mean, Switzerland. I'm sure is. Well, you there, think, and you would think they would be high up, given that they have that. Uh, they, I think, they still have conscription. They did as of a few years ago, at least, where everybody gets a, a weapon and has to maintain it and is part of the militia. I'm trying to look. Uh, States that with assault weapons restrictions, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Washington, D.C., and the ones that regulate but don't ban assault weapons are Minnesota and Virginia. So all the rest of the states in the country do not regulate or ban assault weapons. Well, so if you're Zog, though, wouldn't it be logical to follow Machiavelli here and arm your citizens? I don't know. Or is I mean, that is that does that violate some other principle of Machiavelli? I mean, it's interesting because I think that uh, it is fascinating the U.S.'s gun culture, uh, and I think it actually does. Like you know, neither you or I are big Second Amendment like nuts, where we're all like crazy about the right to bear arms, and that's like our main cause. But we both believe in it completely. Um, I will say though, I think that it is. You know, with with the Second Amendment, you got to look at: is this uh, a way out of our political crisis? Like, for instance, we've seen the thing r recently where a lot of conservatives will make a big stand about their Second Amendment right. rights, but when their First Amendment rights are violated, they don't. They, it's just like crickets, you know. Well, it's, like it's, a, it's like any conservative thing, like taxes or abortion, where they'll use this as a wedge issue to avoid talking about race, right? And concede the main, uh, you know, not even stand up for themselves, and it's just a rhetorically weak position. It is, but I think that uh, I will say I think that while the Second Amendment does not guarantee any kind of solution to our long-term racial problems, cultural problems, economic problems, I think that it is a fail-safe against... I mean, like, if we didn't have firearms in the United States, I think Zog would be prepared to do the kind of stuff we were talking about, well, where they would just, like, you know... I'll point out one thing about the Second Amendment and the Second Amendment movement, the NRA, that is 
detrimental to uh, popular political power, uh, white political power. And that's that the Second Amendment is taken to be, and the, the NRA argues this explicitly, that it's an individual right. So liberals will try to say, well, uh, let me, Second Amendment, uh, the, was that a, a, a militia being necessary to the maintenance of a free state, yeah. the right to bear arms should not be infringed. Yes. And they'll take that. Keep, to, in bar, keep, in keep it in bear arms. And they'll take that first line, a militia, a militia being necessary, and they'll say, well, this is, this is just incidental. This is just the reason for the second part of the clause. Right. And that's, you are much weaker if you're, if your militia is just everybody has a gun, the whole point of having a militia is not just having the gun, but actually having the units that are trained. Right. Uh, you're, mu- you know, a bunch of lone men with guns isn't an army. Right. It's a, it's nothing. Uh, and you're much stronger if you have, if you actually have those units. And I'll point out too. I mean, my my take on that that phrasing has always been that the first part of the clause is a clear imitation of a a gr- classical Latin or Greek. Uh, ablative absolute it is a they're they're laying out the uh you know they're they're laying out the condition for the second part like it's not right they're not saying that this isn't just some incidental thing there is a there's a causal relationship between these two things right uh and and they're not they're not saying that oh we just militias are a thing they're saying you're supposed to have arms so you have a militia right they're they're joined Yes. And the, the NRA has like devoted all of its time over decades to just denying that because it's for some like legalistic attack or legalistic point they can make to say, oh, well, see, it's just an individual right. And it's there's no we don't need to have uh, men trained as a militia to have arms. Right. It's like, you no, you should have both. Like, that's the stronger position. Right. Yes. Uh, I want to talk about this. This ties back to chapter uh, 14. Of Machiavelli, and I almost want to go through this whole thing with you, Greg. Uh, it says of the duty of a prince in respect to military affairs, because this is something I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, I'm, you know, I have a son, so I'm thinking about it with how I raise my my boy. I am also thinking about it in terms of how we think as a movement, what our guys should learn. Uh, you know, obviously, I don't think anyone should go and enlist in this hog army. Um, but I do think the military experience we have of a lot of veterans is very valuable. They can teach the rest of our guys a lot of things. But I think as far as just like a classical education and how people think, there's really good advice here. Because anyone that is involved in this movement that we're a part of should be thinking in terms of politics as a, as a way of getting control over the state, the leadership of the state. And that, I mean, that's what we're doing. That's what the whole thing is about, this struggle. So if you want to be in part of a movement that's for taking over the leadership of the state, you should be thinking like a statesman in a lot of ways. And what he says here is really interesting. He said, I'm going to read, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. We'll talk about it and then I'll read the rest. He says, a prince, therefore, should have no care or thought but for war and the regulations and training it requires and should apply himself exclusively to this as his peculiar province. For war is the sole art look for in one who rules and is of such efficacy 
that it not merely maintains those who are born princes, but often enables men to rise to that eminence from a private station. While on the other hand, we often see that when princes devote themselves rather to pleasure than to arms, that they lose their dominions. So, in the first place, I think it's interesting that he says the war is the number one thing you should focus on. Now, like in politics, electoral politics, a lot of the lessons of war don't really apply, or do they? You know, I think like strategy, we're talking about Clausewitz and Jomini and these different guys, and even Jomini, who's very particular, you can apply, if you, if you have any imagination at all, you can see thinking strategically, thinking tactically applies to any kind of struggle. Again, going back to Clausewitz, the continuum of war yeah, and right. policy and all that. So it's like if you understand, if, if what Clausewitz is, is right, says is right, and you understand war, then you can understand politics kind of as a war, as a struggle with... with yeah, you know, different different means and different yeah, a the, a low, lower of level of, lower level of violence, but violence in Clausewitz's you know use of the word gewalt. Yeah, not you know still there. Uh, how to apply pressure? How to concentrate force? When when and how to spend your resources and where to? All that applies to political struggles. All of that applies, and I think so. Yeah. So Machiavelli wouldn't want you to be uh, a music and poetry fag. He'd want you to just you know read. Uh, well, read he, Tacitus. I, I think what, read what Caesar. Machiavelli's. Well, I think what he's saying is this. Maybe he would, but what I, what I take away from it is this: you should study music and poetry. That's like the classic Renaissance man. But he's saying if you don't know this, this is the foundation of everything. This is the one art by which all others are made possible. Right. And so, it's something that, like, when I think about my son, you know, I I don't. I mean, he's he will be free to do with his life whatever he wants. I'm not going to try to control uh, what career path he chooses or what aptitudes he has. But I do want to ground his education to the extent that I teach him anything. I want to teach him about geography. I want to teach him about history. And to some extent, I want to teach him about the history of wars and strategy. Because I think that that's something that every man who is a political man should understand. Um, and it's something that is really neglected in our society. And part of that goes back to the comic bookification mm-hmm. of the fact that our actual history in the popular imagination has been almost completely replaced by like Marvel comic, the Marvel comic universe. You see this with the phenomenon of bug men with bug men. It's like, it's yes. What are they enthusiastic about and what are they passionate about? But, I mean, a lot of us liked... You didn't. You were playing with Roman soldiers when you were a kid. But a lot of us, like, as kids, you know, we loved Batman. We loved yeah. Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. But it's like, what's really disturbing about the bug man is not so much that he is into things like Batman. It's that he's in a state of arrested development. He is like... He ha- he never went beyond that, you know? Like, in fact, his, his nerd... Uh, imagination got more and more into Star Wars mythology, the Mandalorian or something, or like even sometimes like Harry Potter stuff to the point where he is like an adult child and he is collecting... Right, because he's never had to deal with like big moral questions like how would I, what would I do if I was confronted with the situation where I had... I had to fight against somebody who maybe I didn't have anything personally wrong with, but our interest conflicted and I'm loyal to my country and he's loyal to his. Like they can't, 
they've never dealt with that problem and it's just like well, their it, is the, it is the problem fake. i mean their heroes are, are 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 like bruce wayne is ageless and and timeless and you know real men are born and they live and they die you know and if you study history you see that like men have arcs like napoleon is a real easy one because everybody knows who Napoleon is and there's like an arc to his life and to his life story. Or if you study, uh, you know, even in mythology, this is true. I mean, this is true of um, Achilles. It's true of King Arthur. You know, uh, the famous uh, uh, Le Mort de Arthur was mm -hmm. the famous, the death of Arthur. So it's about his life and death, you know. So studying uh, the lives of great men understanding what trials they had this informs your your sense of the world your worldview your heroes the bug man has none of this and uh you know he's just got his action figure collection his pop culture collection you know i love movies but but yeah, i mean i see these guys on youtube that are just they're they're having doing a vi video in their man cave and they're just like surrounded by like a thousand action figures and like models and 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 posters and I mean, it's pitiful. It's it's like it's just you know, if they were like fit, and they also knew about history, I would even then be like, okay, you're just really into whatever. But they don't know anything about history, and they're not fit. They're either like fat, or they're emaciated, or they're and they're childless. So this is the other thing: they have no adult responsibilities. They're making. I don't want to just go on a thing about bugmen, but no, I'm just please saying, do. Like, what do you say? I said, please do. Well, I'm just saying that. I think that our men, as white men, like actually studying this is, you know, for me it was, my, my, my dad when I was a kid, he, he would tell me, oh, real history is more interested in, like, more interesting than, like, fantasy stuff. And I never bought it. I was like, no, like, dragons are cool. You know, like, elves and dwarves and, and, and goblins are cooler than, like, confederates and, and union guys. Like, who gives a shit about normal, boring stuff? Like, I want magic and myth. But that's I know, why I, I was, had the I had the opposite instinct. I thought, like, I know. Well, you dude, were, dude you in were, a cape, like this is fucking gay. Like, well, you oh were, wait, you were, Ro you were, Romans wore capes? You, okay, you, all right. Yeah. <laughs> cape like, shit. there's a real deal. Yeah, <laughs> cape shit. You're like, no, cape stuff, <laughs> Romans. But no, I. Uh, well, you were you were born old, but uh, for me though, yeah. like I I loved. Fortunately, that was maybe, a good thing. Maybe. Um, I I loved magic and myth, and and when you're a little kid, especially like. You know, the way they make superheroes, like Superman's an example. I never really liked Superman, but um, he's just very colorful to a little kid. You know, he's with his big red cape and his blue outfit and everything. Uh, but it's like, what happened for me was I got into uh, Warhammer Fantasy. And I, I went down a, a thing where I was just like, when I was like 14, where I was buying all the army books and I was getting into all the lore, you know, of like the history. Cause it, but, but what I later found was that all the Warhammer guys, the creators of that, were real history buffs. They were all like military history buffs, you know? And so all the fantasy shit that they were writing was just recycled real history. Right, J.R.R. Tolkien is just all recycled like I, ancient Germanic myths. Right, exactly. So... And the same thing with uh, uh, Robert E. Howard, who I love. Conan the Barbarian, you know, he was like a spurg about like real history. And uh, it's incredible because the fans, like the subsequent fans of this fantasy stuff would just grow up reading the fantasy stuff and then imitating that and then imitating that and imitating that. And I always use the example 
if you've ever put a copy in a copy machine and then you copy the copy and then you copy the copy, the picture degrades mm -hmm. to the point where it's like unrecognizable, whatever it was. You can't just keep copying a copy. Uh, the same happens to fantasy stuff. What happened was after a certain point, I just couldn't get into like the Warhammer stuff anymore. And I was learning about real history, and it was more interesting to me, you know? And, and uh, like, the Crusades or the Napoleonic era. The loss of childhood. Well, I don't know. I mean, that was my personal experience, but I don't think it was a bad one. I think it was one that a lot of kids should... That's that's the natural progression, if you're going to get into this stuff. So, anyway, yeah. I think no, that... I, I, yeah, you're right. I think that, I think that this... We should study our, as men, as young men, young men listening to this, and if you have kids, I think if you have sons especially, don't be shy about teaching them about war and the history of war. Not the gruesome aspects of it. Little kids, you know, you don't have to, like, traumatize kids no. with, like, battle injuries. But that's not what the ancients did, and that's not what our, what our ancestors did. But they would tell them about these great figures of history, and you would, you would be educated in it. And a lot of our guys don't know enough about it to even tell their kids. But that's my thing. Like, learn about it. Learn yeah. about it. Um, no, you make a good point. Like, uh, one can take this too far. You don't want to be a military buff. You're just, right. you're just, like, obsessed with this, and you know nothing else about the culture and, and right. like, the good things in life. I mean, it's sort of a, um, the ancient Greek prescription that you should focus on the good. So yes. it's easy... It's easy to be interested in war, and I've always tried to not just read about war because it's. I always find it's it's easy. It's easy entertainment to read right. about war. It's exciting. It's exciting. And it's, it's interesting. It's, um, yeah. it's harder to to study the other stuff, philosophy or uh, art or, or um, literature. Um, but that being said, yeah, the the war stuff is is very important, and it's. You know, Saving Private Ryan is, is sort of the counterexample. This is like the absolute most poisonous way to teach somebody about war. Yeah. Where, yeah, you, you don't need to show a, a six-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 16-year-old uh, what it looks like to have somebody's leg blown off. Like, you, you don't... Right. They can, you can imagine that. You can, uh, you can conceptualize right. the idea of being killed or being wounded without, like, showing those gruesome, horrible stuff. I think there's a... You know, if you actually are about to go into war, maybe you should acclimate yourself to that sort of uh, sight and that sort of thing. But um, it can be very degrading to your mind to like focus on disgusting, uh, horrible things like that. Well, well, our society—that's the other thing about our society—is that even though we are about the most un. Okay, so <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. Americans have a very odd relationship to sex. We tend to sexualize things more than almost any other society, but at the same time, we have weird uh, sexual taboos that, like... I discovered this when I started watching, like, European cinema. European movies, a lot of times, will just have, like, full frontal nudity or right. sex scenes... Well, like, there are advertisements, all of big billboards. Yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid in like Europe, like what the hell? Like, yes, and they will they will be very uh, and and actually these taboos exist even to this day. As bad as things are with OnlyFans, and I mean, I mean, the one that always sticks out in my mind is Janet Jackson, uh, Michael Jackson's uh, sister. She did this performance, I guess, in the nineties. Okay, where like 
a boob popped out, a tit popped out of her outfit on. Are oh, you talking about the television. famous uh, Justin Timberlake uh, boob incident? Was it Janet Jackson? I think it was Janet Jackson. I, I, now I'm going to look this up, and when I search it, I'm going to get a picture <laughs> of her breast. Janet Jackson boob. <laughs> the, the wardrobe malfunction. Yeah, the wardrobe. Yes, it was. Oh, look, there's a Wikipedia entry for it. Super Bowl. Oh, what is that? I don't know. A lot of Roman numerals. Halftime show controversy. <laughs> uh, Broadcast live February 1st, oh, 2004 from Houston, Texas, was notable for a moment in which Janet Jackson's breast, adorned with a nipple shield, was ex- yes, was exposed by Justin Timberlake to the viewing public for approximately a half a second. This incident, sometimes referred to as Nipplegate, led to the immediate, immediate crackdown and widespread debate on perceived indecency in broadcasting. Now, Americans do this thing, and I'm going to bring this back to Machiavelli. I know I'm way afraid. No, I, 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 the, this, bringing up the sex thing with the war thing. It, I'm gonna I, go right I, see, I know the it. connection yes, you're yeah, going to make. Yeah. So, so, so Janet Jackson, uh, this was such a big deal. And I mean, if you've ever turned on MTV in the last 40 years and you see the girls like gyrating and, and, and doing this stuff that is like, if, and if you look at like, uh, the Bratz dolls, so you know what Bratz dolls are like, no. okay, we'll look up sometime Bratz dolls. This is something that was like 20 years ago this started. So it used to be Barbies. There was like the Barbie doll and okay. Barbies are, you know, nicer. And they're they're very uh, Barbies, you know, in my mom's generation, there were Barbies and they were like wholesome. They were wholesome dolls here. I'll, I'll, I'll Google image search Bratz dolls so you can see Bratz dolls were created by a Jew. Uh, I forget when they started. Uh, what was his name? His name was... Uh, Carter Bryant, Mattel employee, 2001 is when they started. Um, the Bratz dolls are fucking whores. I mean, like, yeah. they're everything. They're for little <laughs> girls. Like, go to Walmart and go to the girls' like toy aisle uh-huh. and look at how these are marketed to little children. And they are absolute like slut whores with 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 huge like lips and eye makeup and like yeah, extremely disgu- sexualized just showing me pictures of this it's disgusting yeah sexualized i mean it's all over like you cannot go to a a, a a toy section of a store like without seeing these images all over and anyway it's a thing about americans that we sexualize everything, but we still have this kind of puritanical idea about, like, nudity, for instance, that, like, a naked breast is some kind of, like, sinful, horrible thing. You know, I mean, the, the Greeks and the Romans, you know, look at their statues. Like, right. it's, you, can't, it's like, you can't have a Venus de Milo, but you can have OnlyFans. Yeah, you can have OnlyFans. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so Americans, what the funny thing with Americans are, we are the most prudish in some ways, we are more prudish than probably any European country when it comes to certain things with nudity and things like that. Yet we are the most hypersexualized society that there is. And it's really funny, too, because increasingly people are not having sex. Like, nobody has sex anymore, but we are like a hypersexualized society. <laughs> well, yes. So where I'm t- you saw where I was taking this. Uh, I just had to go on a thing about that. Where I'm taking this is we are in some ways the most unwarlike like the most uh unsoldierly you know the old example i used was what hitler says the germans we are we are not a warlike people but we are a soldierly people and i said to mike that madeline albright is the height of someone who is not soldierly but is warlike you right. know and 
Americans, on the one hand, our people are less soldierly than a lot of peoples in the world. And yet we are extremely warlike and sadistic in our media. Like everywhere you look, you can find stuff like it started with like Mortal Kombat and, and movies, you know, where, where people's heads are being ripped off and their spinal columns are being ripped out. I mean, I looked at the new a buddy of mine had the new Mortal Kombat game and I'm just like, oh, come on. You know, it's just so it's just it's just sick. It's just disgusting. And it's like. We desensitize our people to this kind of violence. You know, I, I saw a comment one time in the movie The Witness. The film Witness is about a little Amish boy who goes to Philadelphia and he sees some nigger cut a guy's throat. And the whole movie is about, about how, like, the Amish kid is being protected by Harrison Ford and everything. And uh, I remember a commenter on IMDb one time being like, that's so unrealistic that the little Amish kid would see this and would not be, like, traumatized for life by it. Like, he doesn't act traumatized the rest of the movie. And I'm like, you dumb shit. Like, an Amish kid is the one type of child in America that is probably very used to seeing things getting their throats cut and yeah, animals yeah. slaughtered and cut up and the blood drained and everything else. Like, like, an Amish kid would be so much more grounded. Whereas most American kids would never, ever, like, even see anything get killed. And yet are surrounded by a culture of, like, ultraviolence. You know, it's like, yeah. it's very weird culture we're living in but yes so so you don't do that when, when and you don't expose your children to hyper sexualized shit and don't expose them to hyper violent hyper violence sadistic like violence that's not what Machiavelli is talking about he's talking about you know study like it's great like, generals study their campaigns well, like, liberals, study liberals will kind of have a, a, a problem with letting their kids see movies like like old World War II movies or something right because it's like glorifying war and it doesn't show how bad war is but it's like, no, that's the kind of thing you should watch is just a, a, a the guy gets shot and he falls, he's dead. That's yeah, how you, yeah. you got to introduce it. You can't introduce, you shouldn't introduce it with like, oh, legs being blown off and like people screaming for their mother. That's horrible. Yeah, like, well, you, and, then, you gotta, and, and, and horror of war, you know, what, what, what I mean, the, the Volkischer Beobachter, uh, there's a wonderful book called Inhumanities that's about the, the, the Volkischer Beobachter's um, take on cultural matters in Germany from when they were started to when they ceased publication in 1945. And one of the big ones that they attack is All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. And they hated uh, horrors of war type films. They were like, this is like, basically they said this is like um, uh, snuff, like it's, it's like um, atrocity porn. They're like they, they they didn't call it that, but what they said was this is like the liberal bourgeois pacifist war experience. There's nothing of like courage and duty and manliness and and inner strength, spiritual qualities. They love Storm of Steel, you know, by Ernst right. Jünger, which is full of bloody stuff. Yeah, but it's contextualized. It's it's with with a there's like a meaning to it, you know, and there's there's an uh, 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 there's a sense to what comes out of it. Um, and they, they, they hated remarks all quiet on the Western Front, and they hated the movie even more because it was made by a Jew. Uh, because it's just like focusing on the gruesome and the sickly and the horrible, like someone has shell shock and they freak out. Or, or you know, some corrupt person sends his troops to die and he doesn't care. And it's just like reveling in, yeah, and in like and horror the and... thing not working and disgust. And it's so, so, so yeah, what Machiavelli's saying there... If you take that to heart, 
war is the sole art look for in one who rule and you should have no care or thought but for war and the regulations and training it requires it's not it's not reveling in ultraviolence in media or in horrors of war type stuff it's studying i think the first of all it's studying the great campaigns i mean greg you're a big one for ancient history and and i the more I study history, the more I see that like you can learn everything about everything by just knowing what are the big pivot points of history. And all the big pivot points of history come down to wars. I mean, wars are when history really like alters itself, when it alters course. I mean, you could almost, that's why in like classic education, you, you would like teach a history of wars in a way. And it really is all you need to know about like yeah. well, the I history think, of mankind. I think one other thing that Machiavelli would include in that probably is, I mean, actually, no, he mentions it specifically as uh, hunting. So sport, yeah. sport in general, like sport that yes. acclim- acclimatizes you or gets you used to physical pain and just basic hardships. I mean, we're not talking like, oh, you're used to you getting your hand shot off. It's just you're used to being hungry and thirsty and tired and and wet and cold. Like those those things, well, uh, which is like that. I mean, that's a very a Clausewitz point too. just acclimating somebody to hardship. Here's that's how you build Napoleon up to quote. I love this. The first quality of a soldier is constancy in enduring fatigue and hardship and boredom. Courage is only the second. Poverty, privation, and want are the school of the good soldier. And and the section you're referring to, he says, uh, as to the practice uh, of studying by practicing, learning war by practice, the prince ought, besides keeping his soldiers well-trained and disciplined, to be constantly engaged in the chase, that he may inure his body to hardships and fatigue, and gain at the same time a knowledge of places by observing how the mountains slope, the valleys open, and the plains spread, acquainting himself with the characters of rivers and marshes, and giving the greatest attention to this subject. Such knowledge is useful to him in two ways. For first, he learns thereby to know his own country, and to understand better how it may be defended. And next, from his familiar acquaintance with its localities, he readily comprehends the character of other districts when obliged to observe them for the first time. For the hills, valleys, plains, rivers, and marshes of Tuscany, for example, have a certain resemblance to those elsewhere, so that from a knowledge of the natural features of that province, similar knowledge in respect to other provinces may readily be gained." The prince who is wanting in this kind of knowledge is wanting in the first qualification of a good captain, for by it he is taught how to surprise an enemy, how to choose an encampment, how to lead his army on a march, how to array it for battle, and how to post it to the best advantage for siege. Now, some of that you could say, oh, that's 1500s, right? That doesn't apply anymore. I would say wrong. Wrong. No, of course um, not. Because, you know, we... So let me... Another digression. We have a lot of guys in our thing. And again, a lot of what I'm saying is I, I is what I think is good advice for our guys. Uh, we have a lot of guys who spend a lot of time at the range. Right. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with that. But uh, what I would say is... If you, if you can, like, shoot a perfect uh, a perfect grouping at 200 yards, but you can't run a mile, like, you're not a very useful guy. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're. I mean, Greg, you're, you're, you, you are my hero when it comes to this because you're always one that pushes yourself to do the, 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 the running and the long haul stuff. But I think that that's, uh, that. But that's true though. That it's yeah. like if you can go, uh, like I, I live in West Virginia and there's a lot of mountains, you know. And and it's funny because a buddy of mine had a had a drone 
recently, and we got to play around with it, and I got to see like how crazy it is how a drone can follow your vehicle like down the road it can watch and see everything you're doing and can zoom right in on your house and that's a feature of 21st century warfare is drones are ubiquitous they're everywhere the crazy thing about the mountains though in the woods is that drones can't penetrate the forest the cover now there are infrared things and there's things that can you know that can see but for the most part like it's amazing how dense foliage still has the same effect that it did in the Vietnam War and that it did in World War II in that it kind of shields from view people. So, you know, but the thing about the mountains is if you go out in West Virginia and you try to scrabble up a mountain from the, on the side yeah. and you're not going in a pass or something, it will kill you. I oh, mean, I know. it is brutal on, I, your, on your chest. Like, I just, on your- like last month, I, I, I ended up walking about 10 miles in a day uh, for a certain reason, and I was carrying like my backpack and maybe had twenty pounds in it. You know, not a big deal. Uh, it it really kicked my ass. I haven't done this. <laughs> yes, yes, and I think, in a long time. Yes, and and I think I think it's like you know we're preparing for what do they call it? S H T F shit hits the fan yeah, scenarios. Yeah. You know, we all love to have our guys get their. Uh, they're like bug out bags, you know, where they get all they buy all the perfect equipment for survival and everything. And I think that's good. Again, that's not a bad thing. I, I like that our guys are well armed. I like that our guys are prepared to protect their families and themselves in the event. Some of our guys, you know, uh, train together, shoot together. That's all very good. But it's like think of the old school stuff because look at look and at- to injury too is another thing. Uh, yes, if you haven't done running or playing sport or or working or marching like every day for a a long time yeah you're just you're gonna you twist your ankle like easily i mean or or get shin splints and you're like you can't walk yes um yeah and that's like a a thing that you can overcome or you need to overcome right and i i think like well and, and that's another thing is i mean even more of a digression but like basic first aid is something that not enough of our guys know like i'm i'm very ignorant with it and it's something that when you think about it it's like you should probably know that. Like, you should probably learn, like, yeah. basic first aid. As much as you know how to, like, clean your gun and fire and, then you know, get hit the target, you should learn some basic first aid. But I really do think that physical... And Hitler would agree with me, and uh, so would Machiavelli, and so would Napoleon, that, you know, your physical condition should be good, and you should do things to push the limits of it. And uh, this isn't just going to the gym. Far from it, actually. I mean, like, one of the things that the Nazis were big on is, and Napoleon was huge on, is learning to deal with the fucking weather. So, like, if you can, you know, it's pouring down rain and you could still go out and you're used to just getting dumped on, you know? Right. You're not like, oh, God, it's raining. <laughs> you know, I'm getting wet. Like, getting over that. Uh, or, or, or the cold, you know? Uh, the Russians, I mean, the Russians to this day are just brutal when it comes they're fucking animals when it comes to their ability to to deal with the cold i don't know if the russian army does this anymore but allegedly they you know you just put a russian platoon out in the forest and they'll just like eat tree bark and well uh, i saw pictures (laughs) of the soviets the way the soviets encouraged people to raise kids and they would have like nurseries outdoors in the middle of the snow like they would have them bundled up so they're just their faces were showing but they thought that cold air breathing cold air was good for like babies and toddlers because it would get them used to the cold i don't know well, you know, there's but there's another aspect to all this too that should be mentioned. Um, it's not it's not just the physical toughness for the sake of 
physical toughness in war. It's that training for physical toughness makes you have mental toughness. Yes. And yes. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Uh, yes. That, I mean, I remember like in, in high school running track, like how difficult how hard it was even as somebody who'd like played a lot of sports as a as a kid how difficult it was to do some of these track workouts where you're just running repeat 400s like you run a 400 okay take a break run another one and do it like eight or ten times and oh, like wow. you're yeah. you're throwing up on number six and you right. got to do it again and you your mind does this thing um probably a lot of people are familiar with this and if, if you're not like it's something you should get familiar with is your mind does this thing at first where you're like i will do anything for a break and you you expose yourself to that enough times where you get to the point where okay i've been at this level of exhaustion before i know i can go farther i know it will end soon i can push myself through another minute two minutes hour whatever of this pain and i'll get to that break so it, it like built your yeah. like conditioning your mind for this sort of thing yeah and that's uh that's something I know that like the Navy SEALs, that's a big part of their training yeah, and stuff yeah. like that is just pushing guys to where they are like dying of exhaustion. And, and why? why yeah, the better would, elements of the military still do that. Yeah. Wh um. Why would, why would they do that if it was, why would they do it if it was only something that applies in the era of cavalry and, and marching musketeers and things like that. I mean, why would they do that in the 21st century when we have these like cyborg kits of like, you know, infrared and all this kind of drones and, and everything else and heat guided missiles. And it's, it's they, like they do stuff it breaks. <laughs> stuff things, breaks. Things doesn't work out. Well, and like you say, psychologically, it's very important. So yeah, I think that Machiavelli is what he's saying there is study war. And now, now he also says, as far as the study part of it, he says, uh, to, to uh, oh, and I like this. He says, because um, this is fun. He, he's talking about uh, among the commendations which Philopomen, prince of the Achaeans, has received from historians is this, that in times of peace, he was always thinking of methods of warfare, so that when walking in the country with his friends, he would often stop and talk with them on the subject. Quote, if the enemy, he would say, were posted on that hill, and we found ourselves posted here with our army, which of us would have the better position? How could we most safely and in the best order advance to meet them? If we had to retreat, what direction should we take? If they retired, how should we pursue? In this way, he put to his friends as he went along all the contingencies that can befall an army. He listened to their opinions, stated his own, and supported them with reasons. And from his being constantly occupied with such mediations, it resulted that when an actual command, no complication could ever present itself with which he was not prepared to deal. Now, I would say there, a lot of our guys like to play video games. And they like to play, uh, and I, I love the, the old Total War games. Um, a lot of our guys play real-time strategy and, and turn-based strategy games, first-person shooter games. I think those are all valuable. I, I Honestly, I mean, you don't want to like spend hundreds of hours of your life which i, mean, I have which we all have but. which we all have yes <laughs> well steam let's not keeps, pretend otherwise steam, steam keeps a counter on how many hours you put into <laughs> certain games and, and medieval total war has like sucked i up, always like, i always uh, play like, as the uh, as the moors oh really yeah in, in the, yeah not I'm, always uh, but it's fun to well, i i i i and they're played... like yes yes my sultan yeah since it's uh <laughs> emily is always like she'll be making fun she'll be like Kaiser, Kaiser, <laughs> yeah, Kaiser. You know, I say this. I've played the Germans so many times for so many years that I actually, I'm, I'm permanently rooted 
in Germany when I think of Europe. So like when mm. I think of Europe, I'm always like I'm never like Europe is to the is is to the east. I'm always like France is west. I'm, I'm like Europe, <laughs> France is west. Poland and Hungary are east. Uh, Denmark is north. <laughs> you know, England is uh, is north uh, northwest. Um, I do think those games though have a certain. Uh, there's a value to some to a lot of strategy games. One in that it, it helps you learn geography. It does teach some basic geography. Yeah, it does teach you know, basically. You know, way. because it's funny is a, a good video game will show you like, um, like I remember in medieval Total War One, which was actually a better game. Uh, it had better AI. Certain areas would always become like killing grounds that were always being fought over. And they were always the ones that in real life were. And it wasn't because the game programmed it that way. It's just because that was the natural bumping mm -hmm. together. So right. like Flanders, like the, the low yeah. countries, was always where like the three big Germany, France, and England were always like fighting over that, over that area, you know? So it teaches you geography. But what I was going to say was uh, it's good to play these games but it's good to, um, you know, I'm going to indulge. This isn't Fed posting. I'm not about to Fed post. I'm going to indulge our preppers a little bit, though. And normally I don't like to do this because normally I think that prepping is a path to de-radicalization. Depoliticization. Depoliticization, which is it's the same way of saying de-radicalization because it's like, Oh, I'm super radical. I got my automatic shotgun, you know, with a 50 round clip. Like I'm more radical than you. No, you're not because you won't go to a, will you go protest? This girl was killed by this nigger. Will you go out and hold a sign that that's asking right. for justice right. for her? You know, no, no. Cause you're too with your skull mask and your, and your automatic shotgun. Um, I think that it is depolitization though. You're absolutely right. Uh, so I don't like to indulge preppers very much, but I will say this. Uh, with the caveat that I don't believe I do, I do believe in political solutions. I do believe in the value of elections when you can muster the force to wage them. And I do believe that our struggle can be won politically. Having said that, indulging our preppers for a second, uh, I think that at the point that we are ready to win, when when we are on the cusp of victory politically. By legal means. By legal means. And that's not just a fine print. No. I mean it. That's, that's what I'm, I'm defining what yeah. you meant by yeah. political. By, yeah. when, when we are on the cusp of victory by legal means, if we do not have the physical capacity to withstand an attempt to suppress us with sheer force, we will lose because they will use sheer force. So with that said, there is a role for prepping. There is a role for stockpiling arms and ammunition. There is a role for stockpiling food. But more than that, what Machiavelli is saying, there is a role for knowing the geography of the United States. And I mean literally the physical geography of the United States. There is a role for understanding geographically what are the strong points. And if you watch this Ukraine-Russia war, people should study this. Because this shows that even in an era of drones and satellites and all the rest of it, outer space shit, cyborgs. Uh, there's still, like that Economist article said, trench warfare, there's still, there's still areas being fought over in Ukraine that were fought over centuries ago um, by medieval armies, you know, the, the, around Kiev and things like that. Uh, and certain patterns of war 
get fought over again and again, like uh, in certain places, because geography is constant. So, for instance, one of Frederick the Great, I think his big victory was uh, there was a battle. That's, uh, of- Rosbach. Is that the one? Rosbach? Well, Lutzen. I was going to say Lutzen, which was there was another battle of Lutzen oh, right. oh, yeah, in yeah. Uh, Napoleon's time in 1813, major battle in Lutzen. So another thing for our guys to study, I'm not as interested in the American Civil War as I am in uh, Napoleonic Wars, for instance, or World War II. But the American Civil War is useful to study from the point of view of it's the only time that this continent has been lit up with an actual major right. conflict. So if you study the Civil War, study the geography of the Civil War, study the role of rivers, of mountains, of plains, of forests, but a lot of those are the same today. A lot of those are the same today. Now, there's a lot more built up, a lot more suburbs, a lot more cities, but I think that studying geography and knowing the land, walking the land, running, getting yourself in shape, I think all these things are necessary for all our guys to do. Because it's not saying we can't win power by legal means, but it's saying that if we don't have our asses covered in that area, we don't have the ability to fight. If force is used against us, then force will be used against us someday and we'll be defeated. So that's my one little indulgence to to the prepper community and where I think Machiavelli is absolutely right. Um, There was one other thing in this chapter, though, that I wanted to address. But did you have something else you wanted to say about that? Uh, No. No. have a couple other sort of random things that could be mentioned okay uh one thing he talks about later on in in uh, the prince is uh, fortresses and whether fortresses are useful or they aren't and it's, his basic point is that fortresses are useful when you are a weak government and you need to suppress your own people but they're <laughs> often useless in the face of an enemy because they just give your people something to fall back on um but he makes a, I think, a more interesting point in this chapter about um, about factions, and so he says he gives the example: the Venetians, motivated as I believe by the reasons mentioned above, cultivated the Guelph and the Ghibelline parties in the cities subject to them, and though they never allowed these things to come to bloodshed they nevertheless cultivated these discords between them so that the citizens occupied by their own differences would not unite against them just uh it's remarkable mainly because i mean it's how zog keeps this country under control is just basic party politics and it's fake party politics and the guelphs and the ghibellines that he's mentioning uh were the two factions in medieval italy even you know dante talks about the guelphs and the ghibellines all the time uh, Guelphs were the faction in a lot of the cities that more that were more supportive of the Pope, and the Ghibellines were the faction that were more supportive supportive of the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, and Guelph is the it's it it's related to the word wealth, like the wealth family and um, uh, the wealth noble family. Anytime you see a word with like a GU in a, a Romance language, it's a Latin person trying to say a W word. Oh, okay. So All like, right. think of like yeah. Yeah, this is a good one. Uh, guerra in Italian means yeah. war, like guerrilla fighter. Oh, or, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. This is this. It's from the Germanic word war, or English war. Okay. You're thinking like Roman times when these Germanic mercenaries were dealing with Roman like officers and 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 Latin speaking Roman troops. They had to talk about war, and the Germans would say war, and the Italians and the the French and everything else would say 
bellum, which is the Latin word for bellum. war. But yeah. the word bellum they, they stopped using because it's too easily confused with the word for beautiful. Bell, bellum is also Bell, beautiful. Yes, right. So they compromised on using the German word, but the Italian, all these romance people wow. couldn't say the wa at the beginning of the words. They'd say uh, guerra rather than oh, wow. guerra. <laughs> That's interesting. There's yeah. a lot of, there's, there's one other funny uh, mercenary, like Germanic uh, French crossover. The word bivouac. It's a very bivouac. weird word. Like, where yeah, does this yeah, come yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. It's a French person trying to say bivacht. And yeah. bivacht, by watch. It's if the Swiss mercenaries in French service would have the bivacht, which means staying out on watch at night. Interesting. But, but, by the way, everybody should own a, a like what do they call it a bivy sack? Um, I, I need uh, to get a, ruck, a rucksack. Uh, no, a, a, like a, a bivy bag where, where oh. it's like you can you can camp in the open. Okay. You can camp in the open ground because it's much easier than than uh, 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 having a tent, which I need to get one actually. Um, and I want to do some I want to do some camping out in the open. Um, Ugh, like I hate the, nature. I really do. You hate nature. <laughs> you got to inure yourself to that too. Yeah, Not just yeah. the shin splints on the track. You know, uh, you got to you got to get used to the uh, you know the bugs crawling on you at night. <laughs> That's part of the the discomfort. So we, you know, we Italians like to build you know big pools, big <laughs> fountains. You, this, like none of this nature. This is why you guys couldn't lakes. penetrate Germany. It was like just too wooded. You know. Like <laughs> but no, I. Uh, in between the the, the the parts about the of a, the duty of a prince in respect of military affairs, it's right after he says that line about uh, you know when princes devote themselves rather to pleasure than to arms they lose their dominions, which by the way I wanted to make another point about that, isn't it funny? Isn't it interesting? In regards to this, how few members of our ruling class actually serve in the military anymore. Right. The ones that do are treated like, oh, my God, he's a veteran. Oh, boy. You know, like, uh, wasn't Kinzinger? Kinzinger, I think, was, and a couple of others. Some of these uh, scumbags, uh, that New York congressman. Wasn't Kinzinger like a, like a, he was like a, a pilot of a, like a recon plane or something. I remember looking this up. I think it was Kinzinger was just, he was it was like the cushiest like air force officer kind of thing <laughs> i mean you know like, oh, oh hardcore come on but no i mean most yeah uh he most was, of our elites are are oh yeah u.s air force second lieutenant awarded his pirate pilot pirate wings pilot wings he was initially a kc-135 stratotanker pilot and flew missions in south america guam iraq and afghanistan later switched to the flying the RC-26 surveillance aircraft and was stationed in Iraq twice. Um, and it was promoted to lieutenant colonel by crawling through the uh, through the ranks there. Yeah, I don't know that he, he saw He wasn't exactly, that. like, kicking down doors. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, my God. There's a picture real. of him. In his, what a faggot. I hate that guy. But anyway. Um, but, no, it's interesting. Um, this has been a major thing that... Um, of Congress, let's see, percentage of Congress served in military. I know it's been declining. Uh, yeah, here, here's one from 2020 in the Military Times. The number of veterans in Congress will drop to lowest level since at least World War II. The number of military veterans in Congress will drop again next session, reaching the lowest levels of members with some military experience since at least World War II. For now, 91 veterans are set to be sworn in as members of the 117th Congress. A decrease of five from the start of the 116th Congress. 
I think this will go down. More than two thirds. I mean, of forget about veterans mili- set to serve are Republicans. Forget about military service. I mean, do they even play tennis or I don't know, <laughs> like? Can they do anything? A lot of them are sports guys. A lot of politicians like were captain of their football team or something like that. It's a it's a big thing. But but I think that uh, it's just interesting because the the leadership of the state is becoming more and more detached from the military. And that's really funny. I mean, doesn't that strike you as odd, Greg, in a society that spends more than the next nine biggest, including between China and India, we're talking about uh, a billion people each. So that's like more than six times the U.S. population. And the two countries together don't have they probably have like half what the u.s maybe less than half of what the u.s spends on the military so you would think that a country it spends more than all the other countries nine top nine countries together on its military budget would just be like the most warlike state ever you know like everybody right. would be like like uh like uh what's the um starship troopers you know like mm-hmm. like it would just be like a, a military state like a spartan state and yet we have this condition where it's fewer and fewer and fewer and probably the next congress will be even fewer yeah so I, I mean the real power in this country isn't like it's the financial mil- isn't the military it's fine yeah it's being a lawyer or a businessman yeah well and it's it's specifically financial it's in the banks ultimately that you have the the usury the the the, the, the uh, predatory financial class is the is the the top of the pack um, and the military is really against the bottom. But anyway, it says, so it says, uh, Francesco Sforza, Sforza. Sforza, from his renown in arms, rose from privacy to be the Duke of Milan, while his descendants, seeking to avoid the hardships and fatigues of military life from being princes, fell back into privacy. For among other causes of misfortune, which your not being armed brings upon you, it makes you despised. And this is one of those reproaches against which, as shall be presently explained, a prince ought most carefully to guard. Now, this is the other point that he says. This, this is really interesting. Between an armed and an unarmed man, no proportion holds. And it is contrary to reason to expect that the armed man should voluntarily submit to him who is unarmed, or that the unarmed man should stand secure amongst armed retainers. For with contempt on one side and distrust on the other, it is impossible that men should work well together. Wherefore, as has already been said, a prince who is ignorant of military affairs, besides other disadvantages, can neither be respected by his soldiers, nor can he trust them. A prince, therefore, ought never to allow his attention to be diverted from warlike pursuits, and should occupy himself with them even more in peace than in war. And then he says that you can do it by practice or by study. And then he goes through and says what the part that I read. So, I mean, yeah, like basically get out of the opera house and get down to the the training field. Get off the computer. Get off the smartphone, you know, and and, and, I was thinking more on like the 18th century. Oh, in the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I mean. As we'll see when we talk about those other guys, like that that era, the the the, the peak of opera and the peak of like that's when they, they were had like the most badass guy. I, I mean, it's amazing how far we've fallen. Like in in where there was no electricity, forget about microchips and satellites, but where in an era when there was no electricity, there were men who were like a thousand times tougher and a thousand times more cultured yeah. and refined and sensitive and artistic in the same guy, like than than anyone today. Um, but what I really wanted to speak about, because I want to tie this back to what we talked about in part one, which is realism, political realism. And I think everyone in this movement should be a realist. Everyone in this movement should be a realist. You should be an idealist in your ends, 
but in your means, you should be a super realist. He, that line he says about between an armed and an unarmed man, no proportion holds. And it is contrary to reason to expect that the armed man should voluntarily submit to him who is unarmed. The thing I want to say about that is that it, it occurred to me a long time ago. I was thinking about uh, tax uh, protest. And I was thinking about how, you know, you own your house. You get a mortgage. And let's say you pay for 30 years or you pay it off early and then you don't owe the bank any more money. And now the house is yours. You own your house. But then you get a tax bill from the government. And they say, okay, well, you owe you know, $600, $300, whatever, $1,000, $6,000 if you're living in a nigger county like, uh, you know, where there's a major city. Um, you owe a tax bill on your house, even though it's yours and even though you own it. Well, if you say, fuck you, I'm not paying it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've decided I'm, I'm not going to pay the tax bill. What will happen? Well, you'll get notices. <laughs> you'll get things in the mail. Uh, eventually, you will get uh, your 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 property will go up for sheriff sale, and it will be bought up by the highest bidder for for back taxes. You didn't pay your taxes, and if you're still living in the house, uh, eventually, what will happen is your own property that was yours that you paid off, the sheriff will come, and he will uh, say. You're, this isn't yours anymore, and we're evicting you from your home. Now, he's going to be armed with a gun. So, now, I'm speaking purely hypothetically here. This is not, don't anyone take the following scenario as advice. I'm just, I'm illustrating a principle of realism. Let's say, hypothetically, you also are armed. You have a gun. And let's say you get the drop on the sheriff, and you shoot him, and the sheriff's dead. And you kill his deputy, too. That was easy. Now no one's going to evict you from that home, right? Right, yeah. So Easy. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to radio in, and the next thing you know, state police will come, right? And they're going to find out the sheriff's dead. His squad car is sitting yeah, out They're going to escalate straight to, like, the, the full commando raid at that <laughs> yeah, right. point. They're gonna, they're helicopters, gonna go, tanks, yeah, like they're everything. Gonna, well, well, they're going to go, yeah, they're going to go. The state police will come, and let's say the state police come with, like, a series of squad cars, and you somehow manage to kill all the state police, or you kill enough of them that they are forced to fall back and retreat. Eventually, they will call out, like, they, first of all, they'll call out SWAT teams. They'll get, like, SWAT teams of guys. The U.S. Marshals probably will come in with SWAT teams. Let's say you wipe them out, and you drive them back. Well, then what's going to happen is the National Guard. The National Guard will come. They have a civil insurrection on our hands now. We have, a, we have a, like, a, an actual insurrection. And they will send the National Guard. And let's say you have the firepower, you have the artillery, and, and somehow you have the men that you blast the National Guard and you defeat them in battle after battle and they're driven back. And they were not able to beat you. Well, then what happens? Then the regular army is going to come in. Then the regular army, the full regular army of the state, the Marines, they're, they're hardest guys. They'll do throw everything they've got. But let's say you beat them. Let's say you beat them. Now do you have to pay your taxes? No. And the reason is because now you are the government. Right. <laughs> you are the government. At least of that little piece you of land. You are the government. <laughs> now you get to make other guys pay their taxes. My point is this. When I thought about this, and I one time like sketched this out, and I thought it in my mind, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, that's true. Like, if you beat the army, 
And if they don't have any allies, like let's say they ally, like NATO comes to their aid, you know, because the United States is falling to the tax protest dude and his army, uh, which is literally how this country was founded. Um, NATO swoops in and they are defeated. If finally you've defeated all the allies of the of the ruling power, there is no there's no one who's going to come to save them. There's no one who's going to come to stop you. And and what I real when I realized this, I realized that the whole thing, Congress, the Supreme Court, the Constitution, liberty, the Magna Carta, all this horseshit is just groups of armed men that have secured a certain territory and have declared their dominance. That's what flags are. You know, I'm I'm teaching my boy now about flags and the importance of flags. I'm like, that's a flag. And he knows. He's like, he knows what a flag is. I when I was a kid, I didn't I saw a flag as a piece of cloth, you know, I didn't understand. It's like that's a symbol. It's like when a male cat goes around, if you know male cats and they're unneutered, they piss on everything. <laughs> it's like what they do is they piss on everything because they're marking their territory. And what they're telling is no other male cat can come and fuck with me. And if they do, you know, a male cat who's unneutered, they have these big cheeks and they get all like cut up and their faces are, you know, you see a tomcat, a real tomcat, they you can barely see. They got so many scratches from all they do is piss on everything, screw female cats and fight other males. But everything in nature, this is what they do. And flags are the equivalent. And groups of armed men secure territories and they set up the rules. And if you have a bigger group of armed men, that are more well-armed or you have more men or whatever, and you knock off the other group of armed men, then you get to determine everything. You get to determine what flag you're going to plant there. You get to determine what property taxes people pay and what the rules are. And every single principle that we think of, democracy, again, the Supreme Court, everything, the Bill of Rights only comes down to groups of armed men in this world. Now, this is not to say of the kingdom hereafter. But that's what realism is in a nutshell. What Machiavelli said there about how there's no equality between an armed and an unarmed man. At this stage in our development, and even with everything that we have, the UN and the International Criminal Court and all this, when you really break it down, when you watch what happens in the world, it all comes down to this. It all comes down to this. And, and if you look at what, what beat Hitler, it was... It, Raymer, uh, basically Hitler said, I'm not paying my taxes to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Otto Ernst Raymer, I think, was the one who said it. War reparations, whatever you want to call it. I'm not not paying. And the reason they were forced to pay was because they lost a war, you know, and and, and Raymer said it. He said the German army was not beaten in the field. He says it was crushed by mountains of men and material. Um, But the the lesson of the First World War and the Second World War is that it isn't uh, it wasn't justice or truth or freedom or democracy that won it was sheer force and that's not to say that there isn't a moral factor and when we talk when we'll do another show here we'll talk about uh the napoleonic wars and we can touch on Clausewitz. you guys already covered him but we'll talk about the moral forces in war i want to discuss that too it's not to say that there's no moral forces in war there are but it's to say that everything can be changed and everything that we have today is basically buttressed by men with weapons groups of men with weapons so just understand that when you would say the decision by arms yes the decision by arms that's the key critical point and Uh, even if the even if that battle doesn't happen it kind of happened because both forces looked at each other sized each other up and said no i'm i don't want to take on the u.s army i'll pay my stupid taxes yes yeah and 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 you know one of the reasons why i think it's important to 
be aware of this. First of all, it's to understand that no government is permanent and no condition among men can't be changed and no group of armed men cannot eventually be beaten by another group of armed men. It happened, if it happened to the Romans, it can happen to anybody. Uh, but it's also yeah. to understand that, uh, that the, the, or, the present ordering of the world it, it, even in this state of, of the high level of development and all the words that, that people, like liberals particularly, use so much There's so many words language. That, and people can't really see the principles behind the words. Yeah. Liberals more, are worse than anybody when it comes to piling on language about... Oh, here's a good one. Remember stochastic terrorism? Oh, yeah. What does that mean? Uh, it means, like... It means, I think, like when Trump would say something, it, it means saying something that says don't do violence, but you're actually making people do violence. I don't even know. Like it, it it's a, it's well, a stupid word to describe a concept that could be explained in simpler words, and they and because they have this new word for it, they think that they've discovered a new thing. Yeah. Well, liberals use terms like uh, equality or diversity. Or our democracy, that's the big one, you know, that we hear over and over again, our sacred democracy. The United States is dominant in the world today because it came out on top of a series of wars, world wars particularly. The United States is on top in the world today because it has this $800 billion budget, because it has enough nuclear weapons to destroy the planet many times over. And because it controls basically the resources of an entire continent. These are the foundations of the United States' power in the world. Uh, it's important to understand that because there is no special... This, it's not like this is the greatest country of all time because we have rights and civil rights. All that is horseshit. Do people like, actually believe that still? I mean, I, I guess... Liberals do. Liberals believe it. Liberals believe it. The people that voted for Biden, a lot of them still believe that shit. Um, it's something to know. It's it's all bu bullshit. It, it, I am a thorough realist in that sense but it also the other lesson i'll say about that what i said about groups of armed men is that you have to understand the value of uh groups and and this is the problem with the individualist culture of the second amendment it's like just as between an armed man and an unarmed man there's no equality whatsoever well, between a group of armed men versus an armed man, there's no it's like equality. one guy with eight guns versus eight guys with one gun each. Yes. Who do you think is going to win? Yes, exactly. Or probably even eight guys with one gun yeah. could beat <laughs> Actually, one guy yeah. with eight guns, you yeah. know, because the one guy with eight guns can only use one at a time, you know. Um, the, 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 the most important principle that Americans don't understand is the value of groups, is the value of, of groups. Of, and, and this is why... In American society, uh, routinely, like Indians that come right off the boat and their family buys a bunch of hotels or something, they are out competing 
American businessmen who only think in terms, like the boomer businessman who just thinks in terms of himself and doesn't right. even want to leave his kids anything, let alone building like a family, an extended family of getting his brother and the cousin and everybody in on it. Uh, you know, as Americans, as white people, and as a lot of us n descended from Northern Europeans, we think more in terms of nuclear families rather than these like, you know, Asian and uh, uh, Middle Eastern like extent and, and Mediterranean like extended families, all the dark peoples, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like Indians and Arabs and Italians. But, um, but something that we then should do is as white men within our community think in terms of the larger community and of our brotherhood and it's something that you know the mafia did this like there are so many groups in americans the jews are probably the ultimate example of a group that works together as a group but groupness and togetherness is probably even more important than being armed oh yeah it, you know question. it's like now being armed is important it's good white people are armed in this country but groups groups thinking and that's the number one thing that conservatism does not teach it teaches the opposite it breaks people down uh as groups and and deliberately sort of breaks them down into individual units that are dysfunctional atomized so i know that's a little far afield of machiavelli but it's a principle of realism that i think um was true it, it's as true in the 21st century as it was true in the uh, 15th or 16th century you know? yeah i i can't say it any better i mean yeah groups that's the one thing that's most lacking in most americans uh, political understanding is i mean that's why you why so many people for since world war ii have been saying things like oh we just need to red pill people or get everybody to understand the jewish question it's this idea that if we just get everybody let's assume that's true let's assume you could get everybody to understand the jews are the problem well then how do you actually make use of that if those people aren't in a group yes. how can you what by what authority or what uh how can you exercise power over them yes if they're not organized into a group right well you can't you can't and that's why you always lose to the jews yes until you you know organize into a group until you organize yes all right well that's the end of our our discussion on on machiavelli i highly recommend uh reading the prince it's a pretty short read i'll post a, a link to uh or i'll post a link to a audio version and uh, there's a lot of different translations you can get. I mean, people say one's better than the other. I don't know. I have this this convenient Italian-English one that I think is kind of nice. But uh, And uh, there's all we, we didn't discuss them, but Machiavelli wrote other books as well, Discourses on Livy, I mentioned a little bit, which is it, it really helps in reading these books to have some idea on the classical history because he's Machiavelli is so immersed in that. He's always bringing up the classical examples, and he assumes that you know them. Uh, Machiavelli's one uh, anecdote my my father told me about him uh, when I was a kid was that Machiavelli when he was living in exile after he was you know expelled from uh, Florentine politics was that he used to like to in the evenings get dressed up in his best clothes and have a discussion with Cicero or Caesar as he imagined them and sit in his, his room and just talk to these guys um, because that's what he you know the most important people and he, he has studied all of their things and he knew what they would say on any given thing and he liked to, to train his mind by pretend, by imagining himself talk to these guys so he uh, says he says that in that same chapter we didn't deal with it but he says about one of the things of studying uh military duty is studying the great men yeah I'll, all right i'll, I'll final quote for posterity okay he says 
as to the mental training, so he says this after the physical training, as to the mental training of which we have spoken, a prince should read histories, and in these should note the actions of great men, observe how they conducted themselves in their wars, and examine the causes of their victories and defeats, so as to avoid the latter and imitate them in the former. And above all, he should, as many great men of past ages have done, assume for his models those persons who before his time have been renowned and celebrated, whose deeds and achievements he should constantly keep in mind. As it is related that Alexander the Great sought to resemble Achilles, Caesar, Alexander, and Scipio Cyrus, and anyone who reads the life of this last-named hero written by Xenophon, recognizes afterwards in the life of Scipio how much this imitation was the source of his glory, and how nearly in his chastity, affability, kindness, and generosity he conformed to the character of Cyprus. Cyrus. I didn't know that, that Scipio modeled himself on Cyrus. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm not the only person who is, uh, will, will take an oriental example. We will pick up, uh, when we continue our next episode, uh, this great man theory, because that's, he's un unambiguously just saying, like, study great men and their achievements above all, you know? And that's something that uh, I, I, I think our guys should really do more of. Kameraden!